everyone and welcome back to the pod and the pendulum the horror movie podcast that usually covers one horror movie in a franchise one episode at a time but today we have a little bit of a different episode planned uh we'll get to that in a minute but first we should probably introduce ourselves for new listeners i'm one of your hosts mike snoonian joined once again by my co-host jerry smith jerry how are we doing I'm doing really well. I hurt my back this week, but I have a pillow behind me and I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm really stoked on this, this episode, kind of wrapping up all the Elm Street stuff. Do you have people feeding you grapes, you know, while you're laid up in pillows? And See, wouldn't that be nice? Really just put my be. dirty ass feet up and just feed me no, grapes. Really would be. <laughs> but that is not the case, alas. No. no. Um, so what we're doing tonight, last week we finished up our coverage on all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies uh, with the 2010 remake. And gotta be honest with you, I just couldn't go out like that. Just absolutely could not make the last Elm Street movie we talk about the uh, remake. So what we're going to do here is we're going to do a little bit of a wrap up, get Jerry's thoughts on the remake as well as do our kind of our overall ranking of the series. But on top of that, we have a pair of interviews we conducted as we were doing the um, coverage of the films. We were able to sit down with Ira Hayden, who played the Wizard Master in part three, The Dream Warriors, and uh, Alice herself, Lisa Wilcox, uh, the final girl in part four and part five, the dream did i say dream warriors or dream master for part three uh, you said dream warriors you got it right i did okay i mm-hmm. thought i might have screwed it up um but alice herself the heroine of dream master and the dream child we were able to really had a really fun interview with both of them like I'm gonna you know go on the record here folks and say i was shocked with how much fun the interview with ira hayden was like absolutely stunned because i went into that thinking like what am i gonna ask Ira Hayden, and it was like one of the more fun interviews we actually. He was, did. yeah, he was so energetic yeah. and had such a wit to him. Like yeah. I kept like having to mute myself because I was laughing at right. like, just his delivery. Yeah, that guy was great. The best part was when he tried to get us to join this pyramid scheme that he's running. <laughs> uh, that did not happen. I kid, absolutely kid. So um, we'll do that, and then uh, we'll wrap things up by talking a little bit about what we have coming up. Um, next and in the future and a lot of that will honestly be us like spitballing off the top of our head so we're going to start today with our uh, overall ranking of the Nightmare Elm Street series as a whole as listeners know like it's my favorite series Um, to the point where I'm like all right we've covered Elm Street show is over it's been a good run Um, don't let the door hit you but of course we're not going to do that Uh, But we are going to 
as well as uh, continue to cover franchises, maybe make some small changes here or there that we'll talk about later on to keep things fresh and exciting as like a summer's day. Right. I think that's a great idea. I, me right. personally, like I, I really love the commentaries that we do here and there. Mm-hmm. Like the, the one that we did with Freddie versus Jason with Nat Brimmer. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm still laughing about that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to kind of, you know, switching it up here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I, I enjoy the commentaries. Um, they are probably the commentaries and the script readings are probably <laughs> our least downloaded episodes. Um is a little inside baseball. Like it's not what our listeners are normally come for, coming for. So mm-hmm. that's why I usually, I love doing them, but I like doing them as bonuses on top of totally. the normal. The uh, Freddy versus Jason was a little different just because we had already done like two episodes on Freddy versus Jason back when we did the Friday the 13th series. So I'm like, well, let's try something a little different. And I that, think and it was, oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say that, and it added such a, 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 a like a good amount of like levity to, yeah. to the day, you know, because it was election day. We were mm-hmm. all stressed out, and it was a fun thing to do. Just yeah. catch up with Nat and just you know talk shit about not about a movie, but you know. Yeah, and I think what's fun is the way we do commentaries. You don't necessarily need to have the movie on. Um, you know, you could actually listen to the commentary on its own just based mm-hmm. on the way we try to say, you know, I, I've listened to commentaries before, like fan commentary, even director commentaries where like, there's a lot of silence, you know, there's a lot of like quiet in between. So, but you this, you know, yeah. And then, do you have, um, mm-hmm. do do you have, have favorite favorites? commentaries? Yeah. Huh? No, that puts me on the spot. I would say oh. maybe like John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, Oh, is that the one where they're opening the beer cans while they're doing it? Yeah, and they're like I just catching one. up with their kids. Um, you know, I, I really like that because it has nothing to do with the movie whatsoever. Mm-hmm. The Elm Street commentary with Wes Craven and the cast is also really good. Yeah, um, yeah that's, that's good. a really good one. Is my well. favorite ones are, are the Rob Zombie commentaries, just because mm-hmm. he sounds like he's so uninterested in being mm-hmm. there that it kind of adds this humor that's not supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch any of his Halloween <laughs> movies with commentary, he's just like, it's funny because like you mm-hmm. listen to his commentary in Halloween, and I don't want to be there either. So it's really <laughs> okay. Oh, much as I like Halloween too. Um, yeah, and honestly, like the our our episode in Rob Zombie's Halloween is like literally the reason why I'm like, let's bring people in for the Elm Street remake that like it a bit more than yeah. we do because my yeah. god, we can't have another episode. Like in this episode, Mike tries to talk with a gun in his mouth the whole time rather than <laughs> this fucking I, I movie. Just, I just picture you as like Riggs from Lethal Weapon in the first one. I think I felt bad like at one point during the Elm Street remake show like i think i even and i love her dealing nicole is a phenomenal guest and i really want to have her on again um in the future like she's booked for us when we eventually cover texas chainsaw massacre but i think i was like i have never disagreed with something more in my whole life on this show and i said it out loud and i'm like ooh, it got a little like it definitely got a little awkward for a moment there, but yeah, yeah. I started to get fired up, you know, cause that movie just, you know, it's like, 
if there was an ultimate heel tag team of movies that we covered, it would be the Elm Street remake and Mandy. Like, make them your bad guy tag team, and I'm, you know, I'm your yeah. baby face trying to get through them. Um, all right, all this is a long way to get to. Oh, you know what I wanted to ask before we before we do our rankings of the Elm Street series. Um, Adam Sandler. Doing a little Adam Sandler movie. Yeah, I know. Out of left field. Doing a little Adam Sandler movie marathon the day before Thanksgiving. And I got to ask you, Jared, if you were to pick five Adam Sandler movies to just watch. Oh, boy. Okay, here's here's the question for this. Is it going to be a family function or just... Do you know what I mean? Like... Like I would, I would hate to recommend two of my choices. You know, if your daughter is watching it with you, you know what I mean. I pretty much let her watch. Okay, just about anything. So, well, you know what? Let's um, let's hear your choices first, and maybe I'd be sure. like, "Oh yeah, I would have let her watch that." Okay. If five Adam Sandler films, I would pick Uncut Gems, uh, Punch Drunk Love, Huey Halloween. Uh, let's see. Maybe Billy Madison mm-hmm. and yeah, Happy Gilmore. I mean, what, yeah. what else is there? Like, I definitely want to pick a grown-ups movie. Yeah, I would say for this, I'm going mostly light. So the five I'm going with, it, it, it as of right now, the five I'm going with are Billy Madison, which is a classic. Just it's just mm-hmm. an absolute gem. It never gets old. Um, you know, it just to me that movie just gets funnier and funnier every time mm-hmm. I watch it. Um, thinking Happy Gilmore, mm-hmm. um, Punch Drunk Love for sure, which was the first movie you're like, oh my god, Adam Sandler can act, holy shit. Um, yeah. and then I'm thinking like Wed- Wedding Singer. Ooh, yeah, Wedding is, Singer is a good one too. It's like, also 50 First Dates. Have you heard of that one? Or I've heard of it? that one. The one where like Drew Barrymore has massive head trauma and it's exploited for laughs, like basically. But my last choice would be The Water Boy. Ooh, see, I just, forgot that existed. Oh, man. I don't even mean that as a diss. I just mean like I just forgot yeah. that, that was a movie. Yeah, it's, I think, one of his, one of his finest. And I'm just going to sit in the basement. And in between movies, like go upstairs, do some prep for Thanksgiving, and then go watch another movie. So I need I need some laughs. All right. Listeners, what will your five Adam Sandler movies be? Let us know over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. Okay, the Elm Street series from worst to first. And Jerry, I'm going to allow you to start things off tonight. What would you have ranked as the... At the bottom, worst? huh? At the bottom. Okay, are we doing like one at a time, like my worst and your yes. worst? Or... Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, for me, at the very bottom is the Elm Street remake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, it's it's a movie I've revisited so many times, hoping that I'll find something to like about it, and I don't. You know, and and th- like you watch that movie, and it's just like there's maybe one or two people in that entire movie that comes off like they want to be there. You know, like most of them, like I. Rooney Mara looks like she's fallen asleep the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I don't blame her that that opening sequence is way too long. And by the time we see Freddie, we're like, you know, it's the shortest Freddie ever. And I, I know like height shouldn't be an issue, but like when you have a villain that's supposed to be kind of 
you know, like maniacal and imposing, like you could kick Freddy in that movie mm-hmm. and he would go flying. You know, it's like, like it's, Bert it's just, Troyer is Freddy Krueger. Exactly, really. exactly. And you know, that's uh, no offense to Jackie Earl Haley because I'm a huge fan of his other movies. I mean, Little Children's a movie I love, but it, it just seems like nobody wanted to be in the movie. The only people that tried to just give it a hundred percent, drawing a blank, Al uh, Gowler. Yeah, Kyle Gowner and Tommy's Thomas Decker tries mm-hmm. to like give everything in every movie yeah. he's in. So, so I, you know, I like those two actors in the movie. But and I would else... say Kate Cassidy as well. Yeah, I think yeah, is I, I think she, you know, the watching this again, I got an appreciation for what she was going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. just then, and they try to like recreate so many different moments from the series that just come off forced, like when freddie was like pop culture freddie you know like you know celebrity freddie all over the thing all over the news doing one-liners then how's this for a wet dream might work but when the freddie of the remake that's very serious and very molestation heavy like says that it doesn't come off like oh wow that's a cool throwback it comes off like you feel disgusting hearing it right yeah i mean like the um the one-liners aren't really delivered for even like black humor like they were in the first couple of movies. And like we talked about, you know, Freddy's Revenge and how like that's the meanest Freddy and the lines in there, the one-liners are less humorous and more about kind of being menacing. But like mm-hmm. this goes in a direction where it's just not even menacing now. It's just like, ugh, really? Yeah. Um, it's very new metal um, or very like edgelord. It's like... Freddy Krueger edgelord is basically, you know, and for every good idea in the movie, for everything that's like, ooh, that seems kind of interesting and worth exploring, um, they immediately pull back from it. Like the a micro nap idea, like is not used nearly enough as it could be, considering how integral that's supposed to be to the overall story. Um, well, I want to see the original cut, you know. Mm-hmm. Because that original script for the remake and the one they initially shot was very different. And it came off a lot. It came out in a completely different way. I mean, there's mm-hmm. scenes in the trailer for the movie that aren't even in the movie itself. Mm. Like they reshot so much of that movie that yeah. it, it's kind of like David Ayer's Suicide Squad, which is another movie I just don't like. But I could see you, you see that movie and you know that it started out as a completely different movie before reshots, mm-hmm. you know, and I... I the, the writer of the remake and I think Kyle Gowner and uh, plenty of people said that the, the what ended up coming to screen wasn't what they kind of signed right. on for. Yeah. And I think it's a movie that there was a lot of interference from above at platinum dunes. And, you know, this was Samuel Baird's first feature film and to date his only feature film. Um, and I read a bit last week, talking about the movie how he saw it as a business opportunity not Mm -hmm. he turned it down twice and then he said what finally convinced him to take it on was an email he got from michael bay saying if you do this here are some other opportunities you'll have and he's like i saw it as a really good business opportunity and Mm -hmm. that's just not a place that and look at the end of the day these things are jobs like if Rooney Mara wasn't in love with playing Nancy Thompson and she doesn't hold the character is in higher regard as 
we as fans do, that's okay. Like it's a job, you know, but it's, it just doesn't make for like a real watchable movie. You know? Mm -hmm. And we, we, we talked about Freddy versus Jason and like Ronnie, you not really being a big fan of either Friday the 13th or nightmare on Elm street. But what he did was he looked at it and said, well, what can I do to make it interesting? And he brought things that he did love into that project. And I think you get about as good of a pair up movie as you could possibly get. Um, mm -hmm. And it was definitely helped because you had Shannon and Swift writing a script, you know, from the perspective of two people that really love and know both series. And this was just like, this movie will open up at number one at the box office and it will be guaranteed to make at least three times its budget. Ergo, we have to make this movie. Mm -hmm. So um, you can hear my further thoughts on the remake on last week's episode. If you'd like to hear Angry Mike, um, you get bits of that here or there. So I'll leave it there. The Elm Street remake is also my least favorite so and i think i've spoken enough about it here talking over you so all right jerry your next you know number one two three four five six seven eight number eight on your list number eight on my list just above the remake is a nightmare on elm street three the dream warriors wow uh, and <laughs> hold on Let's, can you repeat that hold on i'm gonna yes. okay Yes, right above the remake for me, Dream Warriors. It's a movie that when I was a kid, I thought was really entertaining. But as time went on, it just, it got to the point, like now I could barely sit through that movie. I find it incredibly boring. Uh, I, I hate that the whole thing is leading up to these people realizing their powers and they get them for maybe five minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't like the, the fate that they gave Nancy. I feel like it was kind of a, a cop-out. And it's, it's just... And Greg Wasson, like, other than body double, like, you know, I, I just don't, that, that actor just doesn't resonate with me for some reason. He's, he always sticks out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, and there are good performances in that movie. I mean, I think Ira Hyden's kind of funny in that movie. You know, Will's mm -hmm. a funny character. But, like, oh, my God, the, like, you know, I'm beautiful and bad. Like, oh, my God, get the hell out of here. <laughs> but, yeah, that's just my pick. You have a thing about movie monsters turning into worms because you also have this irrational opinion about Jason goes to hell where it's worm Jason. And I know mm -hmm. Freddy at one point is a giant kind of snaky worm thing. And I think that's what it is. I, you know, I don't know if it's worms. Like he's wormy in this one, but he always looked more like a penis in this one. So I just figured, you know, Freddy was just a literal <laughs> dick going after people. Oh. So that is, I got to be honest, that is like one of the most stunning opinions I've ever heard on this show. I'm happy considered to <laughs> by Considered by many, one of the real that's, genre that's, classics. The I movie go. that really launched Freddy into the zeitgeist. Um, and mm -hmm. by many is in written by an Oscar winner, no less. Written, co-written by future Oscar winner, Frank Darabont. Um with a treatment by Wes Craven, the original story by Wes Craven. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know, eh. where, where's, where's Lord Fishburne in that movie? Other than like popping up at the wrong time. Like, yeah, but who, he's who, not Lawrence Fishburne. In, in, he's, he's still Larry, you know? right? 
He's going by Larry. Yeah. Okay, I get it. You know, he he learned responsibilities with time. Right. <laughs> you know. Boy. Wow. I. That's something right there. I know. All right, it's been a good run. All right, everybody, have a all right. <laughs> have a good number. Time. Number eight on my list is Dream Child. Um, this is the point in the series where, like, even it felt like even Robert Englund was like, "Really, are we still doing this?" Um, it, it's a mess. it's just it's just not a good movie. It's like the kills, aside from the um, kill at the dinner table scene. Like it's like, it, it's really one where like it's the Elm street movie where a lot of stuff was cut down mm-hmm. um, much like the Friday, the 13th movies were like this one feels really cut down. Um, I didn't buy the friend. This was the first movie where I didn't buy the friendship between the characters. And I think like you'll hear in our interview with Lisa Wilcox, how warmly she speaks about the cast of part four and how eh, she is about like part five. Um, mm-hmm. It just to me was like, Freddie's really not in it all that much either. Um, I think it's the point where it's like, all right, I'll come back for it, but man, I'm not going to wear this makeup all day long. So mm-hmm. it's just to me like, and it's an oddly like anti-choice pro-life movie in the middle, uh, middle of the late eighties here. So you can definitely like, and you can tell why Bob Shea and new line were like, all right, like it's time to maybe pull the plug on this thing after dream child came out. And, you know, Stephen Hopkins did some really wonderful things visually with the movie. Um, but like nothing else about it is really, really interesting at all, especially, especially coming off a of dream master. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I definitely agree. You're uh, number my, seven. My number seven is actually the one that you just talked about, uh, mm-hmm. Dream Child. Uh, it's a movie that, growing up, I, I think I liked a lot just because, I mean, at that point, I didn't have opinions. When I was a kid, I didn't have opinions on things like, you know, pro-choice and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Now now I watch the movie, and there, there's, there's a decent amount of stuff to like in that movie. I, I Mark is one of my favorite characters, I think the set design is amazing. Like you said, Stephen Hopkins does some great things. I thought I think he adds a real gothic uh, tone to it, like an old school gothic tone. Uh, some of the kills are cool. I mean, Dan on the motorcycle is awesome. But aside from that, it's just a preachy kind of dull movie, mm-hmm. and it's extremely preachy. Like it, it's not just it's not a horror film that gives you subtext to make you think. It's just a movie that beats you over the head with pro life just propaganda and it's like out of all movie series to kind of inject that to nightmare on elm street you know what i mean it just seems so weird uh that and you know i just don't like the freddy in it that much i think england tries to do everything he can in every nightmare on elm street movie he did but that's one like you said it it, like even robert england seems bored and he never Mm -hmm. comes off as bored at bored in the entire series other than that one movie there's a deleted scene of Dream Child, where Danny Glover makes an appearance as Murtog and he taps Freddy on the shoulder and says, you're too old for this shit. Um, <laughs> you gotta hunt it down, but it's out there. Trust me. Um, it's Alright, my so this is the point where I say for my number seven, now this is the point where I say when it comes to the Nightmare on Elm Street series, mm-hmm. aside from the remake, there are no poor movies. 
overall. And the gaps from like my one to six are pretty, you know, there's a little bit of a gap there, but like I find everything but the remake really rewatchable overall. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a movie that like, I think people will be surprised it's so low on my list given how like vigorously I defended it. Um, but Freddie's dead. Um, mm-hmm. And I think just because like what I love about this movie is it does have the feel of an Irish wake that it's really a celebration of Freddy Krueger. It's really a celebration of the series as a whole. And it's really a celebration of the fans that made it such a wonderful thing. Like it's constantly Mm -hmm. winking to the crowd. um, And it feels like a, by this point, like they knew, like we can't make Freddy Krueger scary anymore. Like just in this current version, we just, we can't do it. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's winking at the crowd and it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon. It's come to life. I think England is definitely rejuvenated in this one compared to part five, knowing that at the time it was supposed to be the last movie. Um, Rachel Calloway's Calloway's direction um, mm-hmm. You can get you get that John Waters influence from her, um, and you can get that she's like, this is my first chance to step behind the camera, and I'm gonna do everything I can with it overall. I think where mm-hmm. it's a little bit lacking is like part five, like, and I like the cast in this movie, but I don't think they're quite as tight knit as you get through parts one through four. Um, and I think what moved it down, like wa- rewatching these all so close together what moved it down the list for me. So it was originally higher on my list getting into the rewatches. Um, the finale, like for this supposedly supposed to be Freddie's final death. And it mm-hmm. really kind of is for the original series because New Nightmare is a different animal. Um, mm-hmm. It feels, it's like, it basically takes place in the supply closet. Um, and it feels really small compared to what you get in parts, even part one, but part three for sure, part four for sure, even part five. Like it doesn't feel like the epic send off that someone like Freddie should get. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you hundred percent. And that's actually my pick as well for the spot. So this uh, is your number six or one, two, three. Yeah, this is uh, the next one for me. I, I think it's maybe one above yours. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, Freddy's dead. Uh, for me, it's a little too weak towards the audience. Uh, you know, I, and I totally understand what they were doing. And I do agree with you. It's very much a celebration of what all the fans loved about the movies, you know, like, and England's given it 200% this movie. Cause yeah, he probably did think this was the last go around. So like the stuff with the Wicked Witch and the stuff with, you know, there's so many sequences that you, Robert English just having so much fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like yours from here on with a list there, you know, like the only two or three that I'm just not that big of a fan of, you know, the, the remake uh, Dream Warriors and Dream Child. But Freddy's Dead, you know, I'm not a huge fan of it either. But that being said, it has a lot to like, you know, and my, my issues with it to be and I think this is what's great about the show sometimes is you could re-examine something with a guest or, you know, between you and I and get kind of a new appreciation for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm never, it, when I go to the Elm Street movies, I'm never going to say, you know, I, I need to pop in Freddy's dead above anything else. But that being said, 
I mean, the way that you and Elise kind of talked about it on that episode, it kind of made me kind of reevaluate it for what it is. You know, I, I think for me, watching the Elm Street films that I really love, they give me a, like a very specific feeling that, you know, mm-hmm. growing up, growing up, I really loved them. I think Freddy's Dead doesn't give that to me. So maybe that's why I just couldn't stand it for so long because I didn't stop and take the time to realize that it wasn't trying to go that direction. It's not that it was trying to be the old movies and failed. It was trying to do exactly what it set out to do and it, it accomplished. So yeah, yeah, that's it's one that I've kind of learned to appreciate a little more. Yeah, it does feel a lot different from everything else in the series, I think. It really does. Um, I think what holds it back too is it feels like a little bit emptier overall. Mm-hmm. Like some of the things like the idea of like no kids being in the town is such a really cool idea and you wish that they explored that a little bit more. And I feel like it would have been a different movie if Twin Peaks hadn't existed because mm-hmm. you could really, it really has that tone yeah. that they're trying to chase that kind of like cultural phenomenon around that yeah. time with, you know, Twin Peaks had just come out a couple years before. I think too, what holds it back a little for me is when you now, when you know the Peter Jackson pitch where it's, Peter Jackson saying Freddy is so weak that kids go into the nightmare world just to fuck with him. And you That's think perfect. Like, this is Peter Jackson during his bad taste and meet the feebles days. Mm-hmm. Exactly what that, I mean, like it would have been an X rating basically if Peter Jackson was able to do like an, like the uncut version of Freddy's dad would have been off the hook. And I think it would have been such a splatter punk yeah. mo- like movie. So you're kind of like, oh, God, I really wish I saw that movie. Mm-hmm. All right. My number six movie is Freddy versus Jason. Um, this was one of the most fun movies I've ever watched in a theater. And seeing with a packed crowd um, with, you know, not kids, adults that grew up with these movies. And it was an absolutely perfect send off for Robert Englund as the character. You can just mm-hmm. see how much fun he's having here. Um, It has two, I think of two of the most lovely women of the day with Monica Kina and Catherine Isabel uh, in this movie. Um, I will forever stand both of those women. Um, That's something I usually do. Um, You know, the CGI isn't great. And you kind of wish, you know, the, you really do miss Kane Hodder's presence. I think mm. that's what holds it back a little bit. But given how hard and how long it took for this movie to come to be, and given like the wild road that it took, the fact that this thing even exists at all is kind of a miracle in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, I, I agree. If you can just cut, you know, Kelly Rowland's improv um during her death sequence from it and a couple other little bits it's just such a rewatchable cool little movie yeah totally uh that's uh freddie versus jason's actually my number five next on my list uh that it's a movie that you know i I didn't really like it at all when it first came out and i don't know why i didn't like it i mean what and i think that's kind of cool how our opinions kind of change over the years for some movies but I think it's mostly because I had read so many of the early scripts that other people wrote that I had this idea of what Freddy versus Jason was to me. So 
you know, like it, it took a while for me to appreciate that one. Uh, now I can watch it. Like I, I just watched it this week and pretty entertaining. Uh, there's still some issues I have with it. Mostly we get another worm in a horror film. Uh, I guess it's a caterpillar, but uh, other, <laughs> other than that, like there's so much blood in this movie. Like the amount of blood towards that last fight is exactly what I would picture the Peter Jackson Freddy that being, you know, that and I do wish Kane Hodder was in it, even though I, I think that, you know, I think Kane Hodder maybe got the worst, some of the worst Friday 13th movies to be mm-hmm. in that I think he kind of deserved to have a Freddy versus Jason. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, I always thought Kane Hodder was kind of better than the Friday 13th movies that he was in, Absolutely. Uh, which is which is kind of similar to my opinions on Henry Cavill and Ben Affleck as Superman and Batman. Mm-hmm. It's not that neither of them, it's not that either of them were good in their roles. It's just, they were given the wrong movies to be those characters. And I think that Kane Hodder, uh, dude, Kane Hodder against Robert England in a movie, like that would have been so cool to see. And you know, the improv from Kelly Rowland, it, it's always rubbed me the wrong way. I think I, I have no idea why that should, but even was even left in the film, but you know, one of the things that we talked about when Nat Brimmer did that commentary for Freddy's versus Jason with us, it's just like, it's kind of a, just a fun movie. It's entertaining. Yeah. That and Jason Ritter, like Nat said, is smiling the entire movie. It's kind of the antithesis to Rooney Mara in like the right. remake. Jason Ritter's having too much fun in Freddy versus Jason. But yeah, it's, it's one definitely that I've learned to appreciate more. Absolutely. So my number five pick is kind of a shock because heading into the series, I had, if I did the mental list in my head, this would have been right below the remake. Like the remake was always going to be my bottom choice. And and it would take a mirror. It would take either a miracle or a massive payoff by somebody for me to move it from the last slot. So this one has always been one that I am not nearly as much of a fan of as most people are, but rewatching it for the series and speaking about it with our guest uh, Deandra Laser and Michelle Egan for that episode, uh, right in the middle of my rankings is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Mm. And that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, you know, and I, I look. It's Wes Craven. I mean there's a reason why he's considered one of the most iconic directors of horror of the past 40, 50 years. Um, Heather Langenkamp, I think gets better as the movie goes on and it's less about playing herself and more about playing Nancy again. Um, Some of the things I really enjoyed on this rewatch was John Saxon um, and how the movie slowly becomes more dreamlike and more ephemeral as the movie, as it kind of moves towards its climax overall. Um, yeah. Still no, have I, some I, problems I, with it. There's no need for this movie to be almost two hours long. Yeah, I agree with you on that one for sure. Right. Like Just, it could, I think it could have been at least about 10 minutes trimmed yeah. at least. It gets a little bit up its own behind at times. Um I do like Bob Shea with an office full of Freddy memorabilia. Um, I really wish that he broke out like the leather daddy outfit from part two for it. Um, right. But, you know, I just, I get a kick. I mean, like, can you picture how many studio heads can you picture like camo cameoing in their own movies? 
um, you know, the movies you're producing. I think what holds it back for me a little bit is it just feels too small for me. Like mm-hmm. things that should play really big, like Freddie or Robert Englund in the studio um, with all the fans around, like that plays like too small of a scene for me overall. Um, I still, and I know like you should critique a movie for like what's presented, not what you wish it presented, but I still think the way I would have gone would have been Robert Englund wrestling with his own success and perhaps typecasting um, and what the movie meant to him and what playing Freddy meant and did to him psychologically and then bringing this mm-hmm. movie to life. The fact that he just like disappears about two thirds of the way into the movie is still bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. No, totally. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. Much greater appreciation for what it did um and it does like i think what i really like is that it calls back to craven's original movie in really Mm -hmm. smart ways that don't detract from um or make you think like oh yeah i like when they did this in the original movie they just did it a lot better that's what the remake does the remake is constant callback to the original but it never ups the ante on what the original did no no totally uh, my number four is actually New Nightmare. Uh, you know, same movie you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. Uh, I do have a couple issues with it. Uh, I think the Robert England thing that you, you mentioned, I think, is one of them. Like, he just kind of up, like, he just kind of disappears out of nowhere, and you never hear from him again in the whole movie. You know that uh, the amount of people during the talk show thing, I could totally see that. I mean, this is Freddy Krueger. The whole place would be packed and there'd be a line, you know, a mile outside the door. That, uh, but what I do love about the movie is that it starts out for the first half, basically like being nothing like the Elm Street movies. Mm -hmm. And that second half, once things get going, you kind of feel that familiarity of being in an Elm Street movie. You know, it's like building up to a return to form. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the issues that maybe it has is that Craven really wanted to get something kind of close to the original, but what he didn't realize, and this is why it didn't resonate for a lot of people at the time, is that we'd already, we've, we had already gotten used to the way that Freddie evolved. And while, while I'm not a super huge fan of the one-liners and the kind of like splat stick stuff that he did in the later films, that's very much who Freddie was for so many movies. So to, to kind of strip the character away from that and have the same person playing in it that kind of relished at being that kind of maniacal, jokey Freddy, I think did the movie zero favors. You know, like fans wanted to see another Freddy movie like, you know, four or five and Freddy Dead or, or Dream Warriors, you know, and I like the movie. In fact, I love the movie, but it does take a while to get going. And I, I do agree that it could be a little bit shorter, like 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it does kick into the Elm Street approach, the last half, I think it's really cool. The stuff between Saxon and Langenkamp, I think is great. Uh, I think maybe Miko Hughes could have used a little more direction in terms of like scaling it down at time. But other than that, yeah, yeah, it's, it's one I'm really, I, I really appreciate. Yeah. And I'm, um, that's kind of like why I enjoy doing the show is because you or I get more appreciation for things that didn't really resonate mm-hmm. with me before. All right. My number four and one through four were really, I mean, like two, three, and four 
you could swap positions depending on my mood of the day. Mm -hmm. There's very little that separates my top four picks overall, but I'm going with a Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two: Freddy's Revenge. Um, oh, I know that you know it's like oh it broke the rules of the series. Like there were no rules. There was only one movie before it. Um, it's such a fascinating exploration of queer themes in the mid eighties overall. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's the meanest Freddy Krueger that we ever got. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. You know, the, the humor that's there is just meant to hurt. You know, it's really meant to poke and prod. Um, mm -hmm. It's a movie that just goes for it in some really wackadoo ways overall. And I love the, friendship between Grady and Jesse you know mm -hmm. I love this idea that like you know Grady kind of knows that something is up with Jesse but he's really accepting of him and he's such an awesome friend and like I don't know man the dude who plays Grady is just so good like he just absolutely rules every moment that he's on screen yeah um, yeah I love so, Robert Russler in that movie you know and god the effects in that movie the effects in that movie are just absolutely top notch. Um, like the pulsating brain, well, everything, I guess, except for the hellhounds, um, you know, but you can't have, and I, I think that the pool scene is one of the coolest sequences in all of the Elm street series. It's also, I think one of the scariest yes. scenes in the whole series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Freddy's revenge nightmare. Elm street two is actually my number three next to my list. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think that this, it's, I think the darkest Freddy that we, we've gotten, you know, Wes Craven tried to do that with New Nightmare, but like you said, Freddy is just evil in this movie and he enjoys being evil. Freddy, in all, all of the films, whether it's the serious ones or the jokey ones, Freddy likes doing this stuff. He likes, you know, he likes the fear in, the, in his victims. But in, in part two, this is the one time where it's not just that he likes it, that he kind of gets off on it, you know? And I think that you're all my children now line, that delivery that mixed with the shot that you're seeing, it's so terrifying, even to this day. I, I like you said, I think the relationship between Robert Russler and Mark Patton in the film, Grady and uh, Jesse, I think it's great. And I also think it's cool that it kind of like flipped the script on what you would expect from that dynamic. You know, at, when you first meet Grady, like he's kind of a dick. You you figure that would that's going to be Jesse's kind of like arch nemesis in school, but very quickly, like they become best friends, and we see like mm -hmm. this kind of dynamic that we don't really get in a lot of films. You know, and and just, I like. Are you mounting her on a nightly basis? Like some of the lines he gets her. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I don't think the character of Grady gets as much appreciation as he should, because he's very much a jock character. Mm -hmm. But not, there isn't a single moment where he kind of looks down at Jesse for Jesse being exactly who he is. In fact, all that when Jesse's going through hell, you know, like Grady actually takes care of Jesse and, you know, ends up getting killed because of it. Mm -hmm. You know, he cares about his friend very much. And I, I think the effects are amazing, especially the chest scene in Grady's yes. room. Mm -hmm. Like I could watch that so many times. It's one of my favorite, favorite effects sequences in the entire series. Uh, I, I think... Yeah, the thing about the rules, it never bothered me because like you said, there's only one movie. It's like everyone picking apart the beginning of Friday the 13th 2. You know, there were no Jason rules when the second Friday the 13th movie came out. There aren't no rules set just from one movie that Wes Craven did. You know, I, I think 
if maybe three or four or five had kind of twisted the rules, I can understand people being pissed about that because the characters and the story's established. But in Freddy's Revenge, there are no rules. And I think that Jack Shoulder brought this very maniacal approach to the film. And yeah, I love that one. Absolutely. My number three is Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, which up until now, I kind of wrestled with this or the original being my top pick. And this actually moved Mm -hmm. down a little bit for me overall. Um, Still wildly entertaining. Like, I just don't get what you're saying with the like, it's boring. Um, Some of the best kills in the whole series. I mean, the fucking puppeteer series, the puppeteer move. The puckering arms, the uh, welcome to prime time, bitch. Um, it has like it's definitely the transformation of like Freddy from the boogeyman to Freddy being like, okay, we all know that Freddy Krueger is the reason why you people are coming to these movies. We're gonna put him more front and center, but it's not overdone. And I really love like I think one of my favorite lines of the whole series is like the is. Tina's nightmare um, or Kristen's nightmare when she's like talking to her mother and you hear off screen like hey honey where's the bourbon and then like a minute later I said where's the fucking bourbon bitch you know I just love that that whole sequence is like terrifying and hysterical at the same time Um, yeah Craig Wasson is kind of like a wet sponge Like he's, you know, I don't understand why the movie made him such a focal point and Mm -hmm. why he gets all of the story beats that really should have gone to Nancy. Um, But, you know, whatevs, it it is what it is. It expands the mythology of Freddy in some really interesting ways um, by introducing the mom and and the son of a hundred bastard maniacs. the cast is spot on. You really feel the camaraderie between them. You feel it when they're looking out for one another. Um, it's a really wonderful movie. And to me, like it is this and my next choice are really emblematic of like, when you think of what the Elm street series is like these two movies, like really stand out is like the franchise distilled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, dude, there's so many fans of the series that agree with you 100%. Like, I've talked to so many that even list Dream Warriors as a number one. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seems like it just latched on to so many people. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Next on my list, on number two, is the original A Nightmare on Elm Street by Wes Craven. Uh, I, I know people are going to be like, what the hell? This is not your number one. But it's not. I, I love the movie. It's great. But, I mean, I my number one, I, I just love more than, than mm-hmm. this one. Uh, I do think the original is a bona fide classic. There's no arguing with that. In fact, I think it's one of just the most perfect films in, in horror. Uh, God damn this dog. Uh, but anyways, yeah, I think Wes Craven created something really unique. I think he created something very deep that maybe the jokey Freddy kind of took that out of it. You know, Wes Craven had a lot to say about sins of the parent, you know, coming back on the children or a lot to say just about like the alienation that children feel, you know, teenagers feel from their parents. I think there's a lot of really heady kind of statements in it. And I mean that in a good way. Uh, I, I think it's one of the, one of the best examples of the power of horror where you could tell these very deep stories and very 
subtext heavy stories without beating people over the head with it. And I think that's what Wes Craven was great at doing, whether it's this film, People Under the Stairs, or even he returned kind of to the uh, sins of the father, come back to the harm of the children thing in you know, My Soul to Take. Wes Craven had a lot to say with his films. And I think A Nightmare on Elm Street, though we now in 2020, we think of Freddie and Robert England, but I think Wes Craven in the first film, he really made something that stands the test of time because of how impactful it is. Yeah. My number two, and this shot up the list uh, during the rewatch is The Dream Master. Mm-hmm. What a fun movie. I yeah. mean, it's definitely, it's the movie that kind of tips the scale um, from like Freddie is scary to Freddie is a comedian. Um, but my God, this movie is like visually striking. You know, Rennie Harlan just kind of like lobbied hard to get it. And he put every single bit of himself into this movie. It's got these wonderful flourishes, like the four slash marks in the um, high school locker, which story-wise doesn't make a lick of sense, but who cares? It looks cool. Um, mm-hmm. It's got some of the best kills in the series with like the cockroach, see like Debbie and the cockroach, like, oh my yeah. fucking God. That still gives me the creeps every time I watch it. It gives us Alice, who I think might be the most underappreciated heroine in all of horror movie history. Um, it gives you Rick, you know, kung fu fighting man. Um, <laughs> it give it's just like it's it's so much fun. And again, like this is Freddy at its height. This is MTV Freddy. This is Freddy on the lunchbox. This is Freddy on pillowcases. This is Freddy on posters. This is who in Robert England knows it. And he knows it and he just goes and goes and goes. Uh, I think Brian Hegelin's script is fantastic. Um, my God, I just, I love this. Like, I really, re-watching this movie for the, the series that we're doing here, like I really came to really love and appreciate this movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I was going to, I'd say like, if I was going to put on any of the Elm Street movies in the background for like a party with friends, this is the one I would pick every time. No, totally. Uh, that uh, the Dream Master Nightmare on Elm Street Four. Uh, that's actually my number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the first Nightmare on Elm Street film I ever watched. Uh, I, I think it's the one I've seen the most, uh, and it's just it's magical. It's everything that you would want from a Nightmare on Elm Street film. Uh, the sets are fantastical. The makeup is amazing. Uh, the whole Steve Johnson effect that he did with the chest at the end is so awesome. The kills are great. I mean, even if on script, Rick was supposed to have a legitimate you know, karate fight with, with uh, Freddy and they didn't have the budget for it on the day. So, you know, he's basically fighting an invisible opponent. I still love it. Uh, it's also one of my favorite things about the Nightmare on Elm Street series is that when they have songs in the movies, they really get good ones. You know, whether it's the Goo Goo Dolls song from Freddy's Dead mm-hmm. or the Dawkins song in Dream Warriors. This one, the Drama Rama song. Yes. Like, I, I will never not get, have that song stuck in my head after watching this movie. Like, I, dude, I, I love that song so much. And it's just, it's everything that you would really want from this movie. Uh, you know, my only bummer about it is that how quick they kill off, you know, Joey Kincaid and Kristen. 
Uh, I understand why, because it moves the story along and, you know, but it's also a, a movie about empowerment, about finding yourself, you know, about taking everything inspiring that your friends and your family do for you and kind of creating your own power out of it. And I do think that Alice, and this might be a little controversial for, you know, fans of the series. I do think Alice is my favorite character in the entire series, including Freddie. I, I, I just love Alice's journey in this movie. She, you know, goes from a, a wallflower to someone who's kind of taken ownership of her own fate and her own power. And I, I think Rennie Harlan, I mean, Rennie Harlan's one of my favorite directors any, anyway. I mean, I could watch that whole like 10 year span of his career, you know, like this, Die Hard 2, you know, Cliffhanger, Long Kiss Goodnight. Like Rennie Harlan is a great director. And I think that it's those touches that Harlan added to the film that really helps make it magical. That and the dog pees on Freddy. Like it's it, what's not to yeah, love about this dog one. named Jason pees on Freddy. And just Jesus. think about <laughs> being Rennie Harlan and looking James Cameron in the eye and saying, how does Freddy come back this time? A dog pisses on his grave. You know, <laughs> I love that story. God love him. Um, my number one is the original Wes Craven's mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984's. I mean, we talk about how John Carpenter's Halloween is a perfect movie. A Nightmare on Elm Street is a near perfect movie. And there, you know, some bits don't hold up quite as good. Um, you know, I can't think of who, who plays the mom now. I'm so tired. Like Ronnie Blakely. Saw, yes, thank you. Um, like my eyes are closed right now and I'm ready to nod off here. Um, Ronnie Blakely, I'm not sure she knows what movie she's in sometimes during this but it's kind of wonderful at the same time. Um, the elements that shouldn't work, like Freddie with his arms outstretched. I know like they always talk about how ridiculous that effect was. To me, it works because it's a nightmare because you're in the dream world. The way Craven seamlessly transitions from real world to dream world to keep the audience on its toes. Um, the camaraderie that the main cast has those four kids like unlike the remake you really feel like each of these kids had something to live for and how Mm -hmm. much more tragic that it is that it's been taken away from them i mean amanda weiss is only on screen for maybe the first 20 minutes of the movie but she feels so realized and so well developed as tina that it like breaks your heart when she's taking taken away uh, Heather Langenkamp and Nancy is so good. Like she's like, I'm into survival. Just mm-hmm. love it. Um, and this really is like one of the greatest boogeymen in all of movie history. Um, there's a reason why Freddy became the ultimate kind of like avatar for 80s horror. Um, and I think nowadays, like it's probably Jason. I think that like there's such a thirst for the Friday the 13th movies. And I think fans of that series are so passionate about jason but in the 80s it was all freddy and it wasn't even close in terms of like michael or jason or freddy it wasn't even close like there was no debate back in the mid 80s through the end this movie is what really rejuvenated horror i think too Mm -hmm. i don't think there's a halloween four if a nightmare on elm street isn't the success that it is um i think that a lot of people owe their careers to this movie and craven is just such a smart cerebral director he knows how to scare people but he knows how to make you think as well and like you said like the idea of 
this being about the sins of the parents and how as a parent, you sometimes want to protect your children from all the evil in the world, but how that can backfire on you and how it's impossible to do that. Um, it's a good look at the fact that no matter how hard we try, we can't save other people. We can only mm-hmm. save ourselves. And I think that, yeah, man, I don't think that movie gets, it gets a credit for being a classic, but I don't think it gets enough credit for like these really out there kind of mm-hmm. philosophical ideas that Craven had. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Yeah. So to me, it's, it's the original movie. It's just wonderful. And I, it's, I think there are like out of all the large franchises, there are three perfect movies. There's John Carpenter's Halloween. There's Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then there's Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. And they're yeah, all, it's, it's the Trinity. Yeah. They're all scary in much different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And they're just, as a horror fan, you really, I mean, Wes Craven had the 1970s. He kind of really kickstarts that kind of gritty, almost grindhouse exploitation feel with Last House on the Left. He follows that up with another classic with The Hills Have Eyes. In the 80s, he gives you a nightmare on Elm Street, which rejuvenates horror in the mid 80s. And then in the mid 90s, he rejuvenates horror again with a scream. Yeah, he was a director that really had his finger on what was mm-hmm. going to be big, you know? Yeah. It's just someone that, you know, I I sometimes feel that Craven is underappreciated by horror fans in terms of like how important his work was to the genre. And I know that it feels kind of silly to say that, but I just think that sometimes we kind of maybe take his body of work for granted. Mm-hmm. I think some people focus on the kind of misfires he had from time to time sure. way too much, way, way, way too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of focusing on the kind of like genre changing films that he did, yeah. like, uh, you know, John Carpenter is my favorite director of all time. Halloween's my favorite movie. But that being said, I think that Wes Craven left such a big mark on horror that it can't be replicated mm-hmm. or challenged by anybody. No, absolutely not. So listeners, that is our definitive rankings on the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Check in in two weeks and I'll have half of those rearranged. Um, But I think like that is, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to get another Nightmare on Elm Street movie. You know, I I think we will, but I I think it's going to be a challenge because, you know, just in the Friday 13th films that have been trying to get made, you know, in and out of this court battle that they're going through, like some of the pitches are out there. And I, I think, unfortunately, I think sometimes producers overthink what a mm-hmm. film needs to be. So if we get a new Nightmare on Elm Street, if we get another one, I hope that they realize what made their series so magical and kind of tried to capture that instead of trying to do something, you know, that's a little too much catered to people. Right. Yeah, you don't want to have like you don't want to have a movie by like boardroom committee. Like, how many demographics can we bring in to this yeah. movie overall? But to me, it's it's my favorite franchise. Um, it's really the franchise that solidified my love of all things horror. Um, I there's 
really, again, in the original series, and I would put the original series, everything up through Freddy versus Jason, there's not a bad movie in the bunch. Um, all of them are going to have like rewatchability and you cannot say that about every single franchise that we've covered. Like I will probably, I'll watch Jason takes Manhattan one time. Cause I just got the box set. Um, mm. I'm never going to watch Halloween resurrection again. Mm. You know, I'll have to rewatch some of the Texas chainsaw movies because we're going to be covering them at some point but it's going to be like the little kid that has to eat his vegetables at the table. I'm certainly not going to like it. You know, like I, <laughs> I um, scream factory had, you know, Texas chainsaw massacre, the new beginning on sale yeah. during October. And I'm like, Patreon money. I'm going to use some of that to buy that Blu-ray. Cause I know that at some point we're going to be covering that series, but I'm like, my God, this is not $20 well spent. Uh, yeah. so yeah, it's but I would decent. rather it's you know what were you thinking Kim Hankel but with the Elm Street series like everything is rewatchable just about in this series so sad yeah, to I'm see it go it. sad to see it go we have put another franchise to bed and up next we're going to be covering Urban Legend which you know I, I enjoy that movie. It's a lot. I actually enjoyed a lot more rewatching it again. I don't think I realized how many people like adore the original urban legend. Like people love that movie. See, I'm excited to talk about those movies only because like the scream movies, I'm not a fan of any of them. Mm-hmm. Not in like a, not in a, like I'm mad that they exist way, but just they never did anything for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm I'm really stoked on those episodes. You and kind of like hearing what people have to say. About. Are definitely a slasher purist. <laughs> I kind of am. You're like you're like 1978 to 1984, and everything after that can go jump in the lake. Um, so and that's okay. You know, I mean, I think. Like we're of a certain age where like for a lot of us, that's the case, you know? Um, And I, I gotta say like back when we first started locking down with COVID, the first horror movies that I would watch again were these like late 90s slashers. Mm -hmm. Because to me, they're like a lot of fun. And I needed that at that time. And that's when I rewatched Urban Legend probably for the first time in a decade. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I fucking loved this movie. I remember seeing it in theaters and loving it. Um, so, but people like really, really love this movie. So yeah, I'm excited to talk. Nowhere too. Yeah, it really, yeah, it really did. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to talking that. What other stuff do we have planned? Because we're starting to sit down for 2021. And what do we have coming up? Like, what are some ideas for the coming year? Uh, these are the ideas that we kind of threw around and uh, any listeners feel free to tell us if you like or d- dislike any of them, because obviously we want to give you content that you, you dig. Uh, after Urban Legend, we kind of mentioned heading into the Crow franchise, which I think would be a lot of fun. And I do think is fringe enough to be horror. I mean, that first film is very much, I think, in line with that. Yeah, we, we talked about that. We also threw around a few ideas of doing maybe French Extreme February which I think would be uh, really depressing, but a lot of fun. 
uh, you know, we're probably going to have to have a lot of like counseling after every episode in Mm -hmm. that, because if, if I know one thing, it's the French horror directors just do not give a fuck about your feelings, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that we, that, uh, we tossed around maybe doing a John Carpenter June, which I mean, God, you know, that'd be a dream come true. I think that we'd have a lot of fun doing that one and get a lot of really cool guests for that one. Uh, we, we threw around Jaws maybe for July because, I mean, when you think of 4th of July and stuff, I mean, I think of Jaws. Uh, you know, we have a lot of cool ideas about that, yeah. And there are so many series that we haven't gotten to yet. Like, sometimes I'm like, well, what do we have left? Like, obviously, the big one for us is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I know Jerry mm-hmm. had asked, like, do you want to cover that soon? And I'm like, I need a little break from the super yeah. research-heavy ones. Like, just so folks know where the Patreon dollars go. Like I have like three books on Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I've ordered up. Um, so I can like do my reading and take my notes just for that first movie that like I've ordered the Scream Factory discs for um, the new, for the new beginning, just because like, I want to have all of the po- best possible mm-hmm. um, behind the scenes stuff so that we do cover the series that you get the best possible coverage from us on it it's not going to just be like here's a cool kill and i think our our listeners kind of expect more from us um but we still have like paranormal activity final destination Mm -hmm. um obviously we just said texas chainsaw massacre movies that people really love and i think we're going to intermix more themes in with what we do uh as well as the franchises themselves at this point um we are going to be kind of planning out our patreon episodes as well like we have a special guest coming up this month for patrons for our house on haunted hill episode um we probably got to do event horizon at some point for the patreon oh god yes Right. You know, and honestly, I, I think in, on that note, it would be a really good, really good idea to kind of tell people about the Patreon site. We started a Patreon site to not only just do bonus episodes for you guys, but also kind of help, uh, you know, as Mike always says, this show is very research heavy. You know, we buy books, we buy movies, we watch documentaries, we do everything we can to give you guys the best quality of episodes that you can get, you know, because me personally, and I, I think I could speak for Mike as well, we wouldn't do the show if it was just another, and then this happened, and then this happened, you know, I, I while there's a place for that, it's just not our approach, mm-hmm. you know, we want these episodes to be, in some ways, the definitive episodes on these movies, so we try to research as much as possible, so a good way to be able to do that is to have patrons, you know, and we have three different tiers that I think that if anyone is kind of on the fence about, you know, being one of our patrons, I think we have a good amount to give away. I mean, there's, there's two or three tiers. There's the $2, which is called the Michael. And basically what you're going to get at least one bonus episode exclusive, just for you guys, you know, uh, these kind of episodes, they'll cover things that we don't really cover that much on, the regular show maybe like one-off episodes on maybe history of punk rock which is something that mike and i have been talking about for a long time or we've done special one-off episodes like it follows with under oath chris dudley joining us you know we want to give all of you patrons something that would make it worth giving i mean pledging your money because you know we don't want to rip people off we're not going to have a patron site if we're not going to give you anything else 
And then at $5, we have the JSON, which basically gives you, what does it give you, Mike? It gives you the bonus episodes. It also will start having some merchandise coming, some like stickers, some pins, and some things like that will be coming your way as well. And then when you get to the $10 tier, you get all of those, you get the bonus shows, you get the like little merch that we do. And then you also get access to our show notes, which basically are almost like mini essays at times. Um, so you get to kind of see how things are put together. Now, I think we need to start doing a little more for people overall. And I think like, mm-hmm. like a lot of people, like Jerry's extremely busy. I don't know how I'm, to be quite honest, folks, I don't know how the fuck I'm getting through each day at this point. So it's basically one foot in front of the other. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say like doing this show is one of the things that keeps me going. And I want to be able to like deliver more. You also starting in January, we're going to space out when people get the Patreon episode. So if you're part of that $10 tier, you'll get it the day that it comes out. And then if you're part of the $5 tier, there'll be a 48 hour delay on it. And if you're in the $2 tier, it'll be like probably a four or five day delay. So people that are giving a little more are going to get access to the stuff right away. All the tiers also include uh, access to our Slack channel where we kind of have like talks with our, our listeners overall. What are you listening to or watching uh, watch party up coming up. We're going to start doing some watch parties. I ordered horror movie Trivial Pursuit to kind of like play that online um, with our Slack channel. And I think I was scammed because it has not arrived and it does not look like it's a real site. So oh, I Lord. have to get my money back on that and then I'll <laughs> order it from a more reputable source. Um, well, I mean, basically what we're saying is this. We appreciate you listening to our show, the, the, the regular show. We appreciate it so much. And if you feel inclined to pitch in, you know, at any of the three tiers for the Patreon site, we want to give you as much content that would make it worth your time and your money, you know, because in 2020, this world's a hellscape. So we understand that, you know, money's tight for a lot mm-hmm. of people. I mean, God knows I'm right there with you, you know? So if, if you have money, that you feel led to kind of pitch in to the show for the Patreon site. We want to give you as much content as possible. So that's what we're looking forward to doing. Yeah. And I'll say this, like it's 2020. All right, everyone. I am very, very sleepy right now. I feel bad because I feel like I'm nodding off here a little bit. So we are going to end our show with a pair of bonus interviews that we conducted uh, early on in the series. And actually like, what we did, our patrons got access to these interviews first. So if you're a Patreon, if you've already listened to them and you're like, eh, I'm good, go do something else. Go listen to me on the new Halloweenies episode where I talk Jason goes to hell. Um, but otherwise, stick around because we have interviews with Alice herself, Lisa Wilcox, and the wizard master, Ira Hayden. And we will be back next week with our... Urban Legend. Oh, God. I'm going to redo this part. But we'll be back next week starting a new series of Urban Legend. In the meantime, <laughs> please subscribe, rate, and review. Every time you leave a review, it helps new listeners find us. Um, follow us over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum and our Facebook group, Pod and the Pendulum, over on Facebook. Thanks very much, all, and have a great week.
It's, it's okay. So, <laughs> man, I hope I pull through. It's all right. So, um, I, I'm good to go. Are we all ready to Thanks. jump in? I'm, let's yeah, let's do, do it. it. And Ira, do I pronounce your last name Hayden or Hayden? Hayden. Hayden. Okay, great. Jerry, you were right. All right. Yes, right, like the uh, famous, uh, I don't know if you guys uh, remember in the yeah. 80s Olympics, Eric Hayden won five. Um, yeah. Yeah, I used to tell everybody who's my husband. For the day one, they never got me. Oh, no. It's not. It's not fair. All right, you good? Let's do it. Okay. I am the wizard master. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to a little bonus podcast. As we continue our coverage on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, uh, we want to kind of bring some of the folks that made the series happen, and we are really excited uh, tonight to speak to the first of our guests. But I guess first, like I should introduce my co-host. That would probably be a good thing to do. So, you know, Jerry, you old sack of crap. How are you? Oh, I'm doing man, you right? Woo, a tough room. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. It's it's burning hot where I am, but I'm I'm dealing with it. My AC is not working that well. But are you and your family uh, safe? You know, we're we're safe. Uh, definitely, the air uh, needs some improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it feels like I'm in like a Brian De Palma movie right now, oh, like boy. going outside. Like everything is so just foggy. It's, it's nice. hot. It's sweaty. It's gross. Yes. And um, we're really excited to be joined by um, cousin of five-time Olympic gold medalist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. Eric Hyden. Yeah, that's right. So we're really excited to be joined by the wizard master himself from A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors. We have Ira Hayden. Hayden. Oh, look at you. Wait a minute. Did I get it wrong after just asking? (laughs) (laughs) Holy crap. I was Holy. so concerned with making jokes that I... Oh, really man. Didn't. The pun in the pendulum. Okay. All right. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to leave that in. We're going to leave in me getting absolutely walloped by Ira Hyden, <laughs> our guest, within two seconds of him coming on. Ira, how it's are you? man? I'm good. I'm just surviving here in LA, you know. Uh, everyone's healthy, thank God. I'm beating, trying to beat the heat. It's... Uh, it's nuts. How is the industry out there? Are things starting to ramp back up a little bit again, or is it? Still- yeah, they are starting to uh, to come back to life, which is a good thing. I had a, a role um, rolling into the new year, started getting some work and stuff, and then, man, everything shut off in in March, and it's been nothing. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, thankfully things are starting to uh, ramp up and. Um, Everyone's taking their precautions and and doing what needs to be done and getting their temperatures checked and everything and and getting back to work. I, I saw that uh, PSA that uh, all of you Elm Street alumni did for the uh, COVID thing earlier today. That's pretty nifty. That was pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What is it? it was cool. Uh, it's it's basically like a PSA, all kind of about taking the whole masks and COVID thing seriously, and it had so much. So many of like the alumni from Elm Street all come together, kind of like this play on the Elm Street kind of jingle, but with you know lyrics having to do with COVID and masks mm-hmm. wearing, mask wearing and stuff. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool. 
one, two, Freddie's coming for you if you're not wearing a mask. You know, that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> basically, yeah. Actually, so, I mean, oh, go ahead. No, you first, Jerry. No, I, I was just going to say, like, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, you know, like, Tommy Hudson is, is a friend of the show. And we were, like, after we stopped recording an episode with him, uh, we were talking about, we had this idea of doing these side episodes with a lot of the people that really just made the series magic. It's just so many fans. And your name was one of the first that came up. And Tommy was like, well, you know, I can put you in touch. So, I mean, it, uh -huh. it's, it's, just, it's just really cool that, I mean, you're doing this because so many people love the the series in general and dream warriors is a lot of it's it's a fan favorite to a lot of people that enjoy the franchise so i mean we definitely appreciate it a lot of course you guys um you know i i really was a young uh inspiring actor came out to la and and got a few gigs got my sag card and then i remember auditioning for this movie and um ultimately landing the role and i had no idea that uh 33 years later, it would be just as big as it was back then. Um, it's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. What um, what was the auditioning process like for you? I know that like reading on the first Elm Street, it seems like they saw everyone they could under the sun to get that movie cast. And by this time, the franchise, like they knew the new line knew they had a hit on their hands. So like how many others were you reading up against for, for this part? And did you originally go in reading for Will or? You know, I did. I originally went in reading for Will because um, uh, growing up in, in high school and stuff, I was huge D&D &D fan, uh, Dungeons mm -hmm. and Dragons. So it was like a no brainer role for me. Um, and that's why I, one of the reasons I think I nailed the part and got it. Um, but I don't remember being up against a lot of people. Um, I do remember auditioning six times before I was told I had the job. Um, and that means I went in, uh, read, pre-read for Annette Benning, And then, I mean, Annette Benning. hello, Annette Benson. And uh, Annette Benning wasn't in the room. <laughs> and then I had uh, been put on tape for Chuck Russell. And then I met with Chuck twice. And the second time I met with Chuck, I actually got to read for Joey. So I got to have all the, a lot of the nurses come in and read that, read that with them. That was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> and then um, ended up getting the gig and, and was just super excited. Prior to like coming onto the film, uh, were you familiar with the series, like the first two films at all? Yeah, I was more familiar with the first one because I was living in Tampa, Florida at the time. And so I was a senior in high school and uh, a bunch of people went to go see it. Now, I got to tell you guys, I was never really a fan of horror. Um, it always scared the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I actually went, I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, being tough with all my friends. Yeah, let's go. Let's do this. And uh, I can actually tell you that I think I had my eyes closed throughout most of it. Um. It scared, Freddie scared me. It was just nuts, um, very scary. But when I had the opportunity to read for it and, and learning about the role, I was super enthused and excited. It's funny because you're right. The first two Elm Street movies, like Freddie is very much like he's a boogeyman. He's terrifying. And it seems like in this movie, it's like he's still scary, but there's definitely that shift to like jokey Freddie. Mm -hmm. There's that uh, comedy, which is pretty, pretty awesome to bring to to horror. 
um, you know, it can kind of take the edge off them a little bit. And, you know, you're like, oh, God, that guy got his head cut off. And there was a joke about it. Mm -hmm. So it kind of made the horror like a little bit less scary, maybe, and a lot more approachable at that point for some. For some, like me. Yeah. So... <laughs> One of the, the big strength of, like, we talked about this a bit when we talked about Dream Warriors this past week, is we talked about how this ensemble group of kids really kind of come together despite everything that they've been through. And there's this real kind of kinship and camaraderie between them. Like, I think we specifically point out the scene where you guys all sleep in shifts and watch mm -hmm. out for one another so that way no one gets... Um, you know, hunted down and hurt. Um, what sort of things did you do as like a cast together to kind of like bond together and really come together in that kind of like to develop those fast friendships? Like what sort of things did you guys get into on set to really develop? Uh, well, one thing, um, I mean, we all saw each other at, at the auditions and stuff. Um, and I became friends with Rodney because Rodney was buddies with a, a friend of mine, Danny Nucci. So uh, we we became fast friends, but we all, when we got the role, we did a reading. We read the script before we even went on set um, at Chuck Russell's friend's apartment, which was in Westwood, uh, right above the Avco, which is a wonderful movie theater out here. And so, you know, we all got to read the full script together. Before that, we all had a brunch. So we got to know each other a little more, which was awesome. Um, but we all hung out a lot. For example, we ate lunch together. Um, after when we wrapped, a lot of us would go grab Chinese food downtown because we were shooting downtown. Um, I think that really helped us become really close. And to this day, I still keep in touch with Heather. I still keep in touch with Jennifer, Bradley, um, Ken, Rodney, um, uh, Penelope, everybody, pretty much, which is an incredible thing. That's really neat. So you guys are still kind of, you know, 30 plus years after this, still kind of have that bond with one another. Yeah. And, uh, you know, last year in September, we did a reading of Dream Warriors at the um, Whiskey A Go Go, which is a very mm -hmm. famous rock and roll mm -hmm. joint in LA. And, um, everybody read their roles. We had Heather there. We had Robert England. Um, it was an amazing thing. We were just missing, I think, three dream warriors, mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer, Ken, and no, well, it might've only been two, but anyway, um, we filled up the other roles with other Nightmare on Elm Street people and a buddy of mine, Bill Allen, who was the crew Jones in rad great eighties movie. Yeah. And we did this and we raised money for mental health, um, awareness That's and we raised almost fifteen thousand dollars to go wow. towards the Dee, Dee hirsch foundation so it was really a wonderful thing to put together so and again you know we've all been close and you know you want to do this we're not going to get paid but we're going to raise money yeah let's do it sounds good could, could you speak a little bit to what the Dee, Dee hirsch foundation is Yes, it's a mental health awareness foundation. So it's, they have a suicide hotline. They uh, have one-on-one -on -one therapy. Um, there's a lot of places in, in Los Angeles for, um, for you to go to if you need help. And uh, they're, they're wonderful 
seemed like a great organization. So that's why we picked them to work with. Excellent. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, you know, you mentioned feeling somewhat of a kinship to the character of Will with, you know, growing up, you were into D&D as well. Were there a lot of other similarities between the role you were playing and who you were as an individual in real life? What Did that make it easier to kind of embody that character? Yeah, I mean, it did. I, I made, well, I made Will me. I mean, uh, you know, again, playing Dungeons and Dragons and, and having that, that power first of all, losing the power of, of my legs and then having that power in my dreams of being a wizard master, I was pretty kick-ass. That's awesome. Did you feel like when you had your, did you ever go to Chuck and say like, I want to live a little bit longer here. Like I just got these powers. Like, let me kind of get, you know, uh, throw down with Freddie a little bit more before I go out. Very funny. When the movie was done, um, I got a call from Chuck and he and I had an awesome relationship. I swear I felt like he was my dad, a uh, really great guy. And uh, he called and said, Ira, you know, the editors are, are killing me for, for knocking you off in this film. <laughs> they, they, they say that you should have gone on. And I was like, yes, I wish I had gone on. And it's one of the rare horror movies where like, not just like, there's not just a final girl, but three characters survive so they can kill all three of them off in the sequel. In four. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's so, so true. Um, you mentioned um, Chuck Russell a bit, and I know like we were watching, when we watched Never Sleep Again, we know there was like some tension on set with it being his first movie and also like, you know, New Line want to be very protective overall of their baby. Um, but you speak to a really like positive experience uh, with Chuck overall. Like what are some of the things he did to make you feel kind of like comfortable and welcome on this on this set so at my first audition with him um i had just come from my cousin david shacker who was an acting coach and he worked on a system called flat where everything comes off kind of flat uh, and you just talk in this real way and so i just went and i did the role like this and um no it was actually the second time i met with chuck and the first time I was me, the second time I was flat Ira. And he goes, wait, what happened? Where did Ira go? Bring Ira back. So he made me feel comfortable with, with being who I was and not having to act in a, a different sense. And um, just, I had a lot of comfort from him. He realized it was my very first movie. And um, I didn't try to improv anything. I made sure I knew my lines. Um, I really hit my mark, always on time. I was never late. Uh, the one fun thing was Robert England called me the Woody. I was a Woody Allen on speed because I would make bets with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Where is success? Woody Allen, like a known gambler? Like, I didn't know that about. No, because no, I think of my glasses, he thought I was like a young, nebbish Woody Allen. Okay. But he, uh, but he said Woody Allen on speed because I was always like, hey, I was, I was friends with everybody. I talked to everybody, <laughs> the crew, the cast, the producers, um, Nikki Marvin, who was our music supervisor. Uh, she's like, you know, we're, we're going to get either Mem Mesmerillion or Dawkin to do the soundtrack. And I said, Dawkin, oh my gosh, you have to get Dawkin because... I had just come from Tampa, Florida, and there was so much rock and roll, like heavy metal, and I was really into docking. Um, so I wasn't afraid to talk to anybody. I would run around and, 
and and all that stuff and so I think that's why Robert called me a young Woody Allen <laughs> on speed of which one time though I'm getting ready for my death scene and I'm I'm getting in my chair and I'm preparing I'm preparing for death because this is it I'm I'm going to die and Robert is in his full Freddy regalia and and he's making jokes He's cracking jokes to me and he's telling me about how he just got a Mustang, a new house in Long Beach. And I'm going, no, come on. I got to die. I can't, you can't talk mm-hmm. to me right now. <laughs> Would he like regale you with stories about the time he had lunch with Barbara Streisand? And... <laughs> <laughs> Robert has the craziest stories ever. Like over the years, anytime I've met him at a convention, like mm-hmm. there'll be a line, there'll be a line out the door, and he'll take like five or ten minutes and talk about like old Hollywood to every single person in line. Like it's you know, it's the gr- greatest thing ever. It's the truth, and unfortunately, hopefully, we get back to those those times, those conventions. But some of the best times are, uh, you know, the convention. Let's say a wrap at seven, and you'll catch Robert England at the bar with a with a glass of bourbon and just telling all of these wonderfully great stories and. Um, He's an amazing, amazing person and a wonderful, wonderful actor. And, you know, we were so thrilled to have him on board as um, reading himself for, for the um, D.D. Hirsch Foundation. I mean, if you think about it, Freddie's not in the whole thing. So he made it really worth his time. Like, you know, another one down. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it was cool. And we also had Chuck reading all the stage direction, by the way. I forgot to <laughs> that is that. so awesome. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the film's so fantastical in its approach. Like, it's just so imaginative, just to say the least. Can you speak on the experience of playing within that sandbox? I mean, this was a time before we were bombarded with, like, CGI. Practical effects were huge, and especially your death scene. Like, it seemed like that would have been a lot of fun to play. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, so they had a... a big wooden board on my back and you can't see the crew members lifting me as I go I'm on the ground I'm like, I am the wizard master I am the wizard master and they lifted <laughs> me up in the air okay so that was that was a lot of fun and then the for the um the stuff that comes out of my hands there was just an electric charge and then they added the the flashes mm-hmm. um and then when Freddie grabs me and says sorry kid I don't believe in fairy tales um, he's holding me up and I am on a harness. So it made it really easy for him to lift me up. Um, but his fingers weren't retracting. The blades were retractable, but they weren't working for some reason. Ouch. They were stuck. So they had to put a two by four by my heart. And I swear I was praying to Robert, God, please hit your mark. Please don't kill me. Um, <laughs> Of which, thank God, he was right on, on his mark. But, I mean, it was pretty scary. You know, I mean, you're not talking about things that were easily replaceable, I guess. Actors included. <laughs> yeah. Right. Was there any, like, special props or anything you kept from the set? Mm, I still have my glasses to the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I had kept my cape. I didn't think much of it. And this guy, Sean Schill, um, you can look him up on Facebook. He has this whole collection. He actually has my cape, um, oh, wow. which, is, which is pretty amazing. Um, I used to have a shirt. They gave us a, a really cool shirt um, that was like Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And on the back, it said, one, two, Freddy's coming for you, nine, ten, never sleep again. And unfortunately, I lost the shirt. 
uh, I had made it into, it was a long sleeve shirt and I made it into like a sleeveless shirt. And then I don't know what happened to it. I'm really bummed about that. Oh, if anyone out there has that shirt or we see it at a thrift store, let's get it back to Ira. Please. Right. That would let's be make super this happen. cool. Because I know Rodney, Rodney Eastman has his jacket from Nightmare mm -hmm. 4. Um, which you guys got to get him next. He's such a great interviewer. All right. Put in a word and we'll be more than happy to have Rodney. <laughs> right. Rodney, hasn't, Low Rick, Rodney hasn't aged, man. <laughs> no, he hasn't. He looks really good. He's doing good. You know, uh, the convention circuit, I mean, you mentioned that. It's always good to hoard favorites. The fans just adore uh, the Elm Street franchise. How's your experience been with the convention circuit, being able to meet fans that are like to this day still just as fanatic about their love for Dream Warriors? Uh, super cool. I mean, honestly, 11 years ago, I had just started going on the convention circuit. Never, never got into it, never heard about it. Nobody approached me. And then um, Rodney Eastman sent me an email, said, dude, you've got to hook up with this manager and, and get into us. So I did, left her and then found Tommy. Um, and so it's been an incredible ride. I had no idea that these fans were so crazy about our movie. Um, I knew it did good. You know, I was, I was all happy about being in the movie and box office and everything and, and residual checks and running into people and all that good stuff. But I had no idea how many fans were out there of the movie. So it, it was really good to get to go to conventions um, to see people that were so cool. Like, oh my gosh, you don't even understand. When I was a kid, I saw it when I was five years old to somebody who couldn't look at me was so nervous that it was the wizard master. And I was like, Hey dude, just take it easy. Look, you and I both poop the same thing. So we're, we're good. Um, so you get a full range of, of fans. Um, you know, some one con one convention, I think it was in, I want to say, gosh, was it in Oklahoma? Um, some dude would sit, near me but not say a word for three days straight <laughs> that's creepy right so you get the the full gamut of of um of fans out there but it's it's been the best and i think i have the most fun when i go to conventions i mean you know try to talk about it being serious and stuff but look when you're the wizard master you have a lot of fun out there what's the best thing you've been asked to sign Good question. Um, I had to sign my pajamas. Somebody bought my pajamas on eBay. <laughs> and it was the same convention that I met Tommy, actually. It was in Chicago. And I had to sign my pajamas, which was hysterical. Um, I've never had to sign any body parts. And nobody really has wanted me for their, um, like, for a tattoo. Okay. We'll Oops. get on that. No. <laughs> yeah, please. Can we can we get a Wizard Master tattoo? Well, you right. mentioned like young fans and people that saw this when they were like five years old. Like this is for a time like this was my daughter's favorite movie. Like she's ten. We watched it when um, we when she was nine, and she would tell like other kids and their parents how like Elm Street Three is her favorite movie. And you definitely yeah. you definitely get side eye from other parents when they're like why are you letting your kid watch this at age nine um but she loves this movie because of the imagination and the humor right like the kids in it 
which is great. I still haven't let my kid, and he's 12. I ha- he hasn't seen it yet, but I have to. It's, it's time for him to watch it, and hmm. it's time for him to realize when he sees it, it won't be that scary, and his dad is in it, and, you know. So how much of that not letting your son watch it is because, like, it's an age thing versus you don't want him to see you on screen, or, like, what? how much of it is that? Mm, I'd say... 70% because it's a psychological crazy movie mm-hmm. um, and 30% of just wait till it's the right time mm-hmm. and I think it is the right time I'm going to show it to him now after we hang up I think please do and, and get back oh. to us and let yes. us know what he thought because what blows my mind I, is, is we're doing research for our episode on Dream Master this week coming up I found a clip online of Robert England, not in makeup, but with the glove, doing the promotional tour for it on Nickelodeon. (laughs) Nickelodeon. He's on a Nickelodeon talk show with like two kids that like, neither of them looked old enough to buy a ticket for this movie. And he's like promoting Dream Master and like how wild and crazy and scary it is. And you know, like That is wild. And now it's like, you know, like I let my kid watch this and like how the, and no judgment. I'm just saying like how the times have like shifted a little bit where we're a bit more protective of like what we allow our, of course, I'm the kid that lets his kid watch the thing because, you know, I'm like, if you have a nightmare, wake mom up. Um, right. Exactly. So Don't wake me up. So what um, the hell do I know? You know, no, it is. Oh, go ahead. Go on. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that. No, it, no, no. You just go. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's really interesting because, I mean, you've worked alongside Steve Martin, you know, J.J. Abrams, all these people. But there's a movie, you know, like Dream Warriors that for some reason, like, fans latch onto it so profoundly that it, it touched them in a way. Not just on the surface of loving horror, but that film to a lot of fans really defined their feelings of being an outcast at that age. And I think yeah. out of the franchise, this is the film that a lot of people a lot of fans really look to as a film that they identify with. Well, that's, that's the whole thing. I mean, you have kids that are teenagers that no one gives a crap about. They want to throw them in a mental ward and we have to band together and believe in ourselves to go after the demon. And that gives you a sense of, of, I don't know, how do how do you say it? That gives you a sense of um, being, alive and and being able to succeed in in what you want you can bring that into reality um you know i was working on a on a commercial i got six years ago it was a um i think it was a dr pepper no it it was snickers and one of the guys in the back he's um a grip and he's running around but he keeps looking at me and going the other direction i'm like is there something wrong with me and then he finally comes up to me and says you were in Nightmare on Elm Street 3, correct? And I said, yeah, yeah, of course. And he goes, you don't even understand what you did to me um, in the sense that I could believe in myself because I had a bad, I forgot what he, it maybe had like horrible vision or something and everyone would make fun of him. And then he watched the movie or listened to the movie and believed in himself and found ways to make himself feel better and become better. So it does touch a lot of people in this movie about how you can go and really become a better person that's so cool 
Yeah. Really? And it's got to be like, I mean, aside from the, you know, obviously the paycheck, but like knowing that like you've like affected a person in that way is a really wonderful thing. That's the coolest thing. I mean, my fan page, the Ira Hyden page on Facebook, I run it. I don't have anybody mm -hmm. else running it. Um, I reach out to all the fans. I put up a bunch of great pictures. There's, matter of fact, there's a picture of the, the wheelchair that killed that runs me over. There's two of them. I had taken a picture and that's up on the site. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, look, we're all people. We're all in this world together and it's a short time. So, you know, try to be nice to one another. That's, that's how I feel. Well, I only have one last question for you. Actually, I have okay. two and I can't resist. This is going back 10 minutes, but you said like Robert Englund will be at the bar with like a bourbon. Mm -hmm. And if his bourbon is late, does he say, I said, where's the fucking bourbon, bitch? Does that happen if he doesn't get it poured right away? <laughs> I couldn't resist. Oh, God. You had to go there. Huh? I had to go there. Um, no, my last question is. <laughs> I, I like know, that though. Recently, there was like a reunion for the Dream Master. They did like a watch along on Facebook. Right. Had a Q&A. And I was wondering if there's any, because to me, like this is the movie, like this in part one is the, eternal debate like what's the better entry like this is the uh, to, dream warriors seem like the fan favorite is there has mm -hmm. there been any talk of you guys doing something like that like a facebook live or a zoom call where you would do a q a and maybe a watch along for charity and raise even more money has there ever been any talk of doing something like that? um i would love to do it i i can probably get that in the books and start it going mm -hmm. um it would be something that I think would be wonderful. Um, you know, especially now, it probably would be a little easier as everybody is pretty much at home these days. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the toughest things about the, um, the read through at the whiskey, trying to get everybody set on one date. And uh, the reason why we missed Ken and, and Jennifer, they were at a convention in, in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, so that would be a wonderful thing to do. Uh, you know, the movie read really well. The, the stage performance was, was really awesome. Um, so that would be something that would be cool to do and, and watch the movie. Mm -hmm. I remember watching it uh, in Chicago with uh, Rodney and Heather. Um, I believe Jennifer was there. And it was fun because we all had microphones and we were commenting on on the, oh, you remember when we did this scene? Oh, I hated this part because this was so-and-so. <laughs> so the fans absolutely loved it because not only did they get to watch the movie, not only were the stars there, but they got to hear what the stars were doing and thinking during the time. Like there's a great scene really quickly um, where Rodney and I are like, you get first watch. No, no, I had it last night. Okay, but whatever you do, you know, don't let me, if I fall asleep, you wake me up. Um, so Lawrence Fishburne, right when I get finished playing Dungeons and Dragons, he goes, lights out. I'm like, oh, Max. So he picks me up and puts me into bed. And the funny thing is, I had my wheelchair, but I was walking around in between the takes. And so if you look at the movie and you watch it, maybe on a bigger screen, it might be helpful, but my socks are dirty. Now you kind of got to figure, how does a crippled guy have dirty socks? Ah, good question. That's a good question. All right, Ira, thank you. Where can our listeners like find you online? You mentioned you have a Facebook page, and yeah, you can find the Ira Hyden page on Facebook. You can go to Cameo and and uh, buy a cool video from the Wizard Master. Um, 
and uh, there may be some more things coming up. I'm producing a, a movie about a mutual friend of mine, um, Brandon Lee. I'm sure you guys remember him. He was in the Oh, Pro. wow. Yeah. So we're, we're doing a biopic about him cool. that Lou Diamond Phillips wrote and Bill Allen co-wrote. And uh, it's about Bill Allen and, and Brandon because Bill was Brandon's best friend. So that's uh, hopefully coming out very soon. And we're also working on a documentary on Brandon too. So there's a lot of good things out there. Very cool, man. That's awesome to know. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Ira. We really appreciate it. And, you know, if we could have you on again at some point for anything, we'd be more than happy to do so. Uh, that'd be great. All right. Awesome. Jerry, any last things, everybody? I think I'm good. Thank you so much, man. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I know both of us do and, and our listeners will too. So thank you. Awesome. Totally cool. And remember, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Awesome. Thank you. What will it be? Come on, honey. I don't want to be here forever. If boo don't kill you, the service will. <laughs> the usual. My favorite. Welcome back to the pod and the pendulum. We are back with some more bonus material for our Nightmare on Elm Street series. Uh, we are, Jerry, you know what? I'm going to just kick it over to you, Jerry. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian. You know who I am. We've done 80 of these, and we're probably somewhere in the middle of this episode at this point, so you all know me. But, Jerry, why don't you take a moment and introduce our guest for the evening? 
Oh, definitely. We're really excited about having this guest on because uh, out of not only the people that listen to our show, but uh, all of our guests, like we did two episodes on the Dream Master already because we had so many people, you know, colleagues and stuff that just wanted to be on the show to talk about it. So we had to do two episodes just on that one movie. And one of the things that everyone talked about is how much they loved and adored the character of Alice from that film. Uh, one of the most beloved characters in the entire franchise, uh, we have Alice herself, Miss uh, Lisa Wilcox. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And how lovely to hear that Alice is beloved. Oh, yeah. Hard, she, yeah, definitely. She is. I think the universal vote among the four guests on us was like out of the whole series, like Alice was the best of the horror heroines. Like, they, she ranked above Nancy herself. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> right, right. So take and I that. Hold a tor- and I certainly hold a torch to Nancy, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so like uh, off the air before we started, you mentioned your PSA that you did. And what's funny is that was actually the first thing that I'd written down to ask you about. Uh, can you speak on like the uh, Stop the Nightmare PSA that you, you did recently uh, with a lot of the Elm Street alumni involved? Yes, I would love to. Um, It really came about, um, you know, in the beginning of this pandemic, uh, I was watching, well, we were all watching just some amazing, creative, clever, funny, uh, you know, remaking songs. Like, I think one of my favorites was uh, My Sharona, My Sharona, My Corona. (laughs) (laughs) And, And just so much, you know, trying to ease the pain and the shock of what is going on. And now, of course, we're many months into it. Um, so I really wanted to contribute something and it was like midnight and then the, the Freddie song, the, the Nightmare on Elm Street song came in my head, you know, one, two, Freddie's coming for you, etc. And I went, aha. So I rewrote the lyrics and, um, I reached out to some, my cast member friends, we're all great buddies, you know, and I said, you know, I called Heather, would you, would you be interested in doing this? Like you could sing some of the lyrics, I'll sing some of it. And then, um, and then what also had just dawned on me, what was so obvious is stop the nightmare, right? Stop the Corona, stop the yeah. nightmare. So that's how it kind of came to be. And everyone I called that was available were like totally on board and, you know, say stop the nightmare at the end. And then, but I had, but this literally took, you know, Mark Patton, who's in Mexico, my friends in California, I'm in Nevada, my friends in Chicago helped me produce it. Um, at the, there's another state, someone was in, I don't know, it ended up being five different locations and somehow we were able to record and get it edited and, um, you know, it was a total group effort, but, uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun to, to produce it. How long did it take to put all of it together? Like from the time that you woke up with the song in your head to the time it posted about how long of a a period was that? Um, It took us about two weeks. I'd say, yeah, about two weeks. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, but, but even the part, my friends in Chicago, I have to give them so much credit because they live in a beautiful suburban neighborhood outside of Chicago. And they went to the, like the moms and the kids in the area <laughs> and said, would you be part of this PSA? We're going to, you're going to have masks on. You're going to be six feet away. And I mean, they were so excited to have something to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I just love that shot of the little girl who's doing chalk on the sidewalk. And then 
she turns her head and you see her Freddie mask on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, like the, the co Freddie colors, you know, on. Yeah. Um, anyway, they just did and all the little vignettes and stuff of like wash your hands and the Freddie glove in the sink. Uh, oh, my gosh. We had so much fun coming up with ideas on the vignettes and, and all of that. And and also, I really wanted to do something that wasn't so serious. You know what I mean? Yeah. It has a message, but it also is um, to be amusing, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm really so. curious um, because I know, like, at the time of Dream Master and Dream Child, like, all the talk in the playground would have been about Freddy and Jason and Michael and Leatherface and who would win. And we like, even though we were far too young to be able to watch those movies, like we had all seen those movies many times over for the kids now that are in like things like how familiar are the youngins, as we like to say around here, um, how familiar are they with like Freddy at this point? Is he still uh, a known commodity? It I am telling you, it blows me away. Um, it is still, it's still very known in the young and community, teens and early 20s. Um, it, in fact, at conventions, which one day will come back again, um, I'll have like four generations in front of my table talking to me, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm just so amazed by the impact of, of the, the franchise, you know? And, and actually, I'll tell a quick little story so my ba my battery died, okay, in my Jeep. So, I, you know, I called and this young man comes to fix it and I'm chatting and, you know, this and that. And then he went and he recognized me. This kid is like 21, okay? And he went, <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So anyway, I gave him an autograph picture and all of that. So again, another example of how, yeah, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise rocks on. Excellent. You know, you, and Alex uh... Johnson. <laughs> oh, definitely. You know, you, you mentioned the whole convention circuit and stuff. You know, so many actors do a horror film or two and then act like it never happened, like there's a level of embarrassment. I've always loved how you've always embraced your involvement in the Elm Street series. I mean, you do conventions, reunions. I mean, even a few years back, you know, revisiting the locations of Dream Master and stuff. What about the films uh, kind of like what do they mean to you? you know, to kind of keep on going with the love of it? Well, I am a horror fan myself and have been since I was a youngin. And uh, always it was loved books about paranormal, ghost stories and horror um, films. And so I've always embraced the horror cult culture since I was 10 years old, you know? Mm -hmm. And so to me, to actually become part of the franchise was like a dream come true, honestly. Um, and yes, I mean, it's not like I just fell into it, the role. I mean, I'm a trained actress and all that. Totally. But, but to get that, well, I'm, <laughs> I can't tell you how incredibly thrilled I was. So I absolutely embrace the horror community and always, always will. <clears throat> and it's interesting, back in the 70s, 80s, um, it was it was embarrassing. You didn't want to do a horror film. Oh gosh, that's so below you, you know. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it was an opportunity for young actors who had hardly any credits to get experience and be on a film set, you know. And nowadays, it's a complete re reversal. Horror films are huge. You're dying to get into the next horror film, you know. So it's just very interesting to see that transition in the past. I'd say three three or four decades. Mm -hmm.
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there is this kind of like, it did feel like a dirty little secret sometimes where you have these <laughs> performers that like would never want to talk about, like they would almost get upset if you would bring up their horror <laughs> movies that they had done before. Like, how dare you? Um, I was, it's funny. I was watching like the Fright Night documentary last night and uh, Chris Sarandon was talking about, he's like, God damn, I was nominated for an Oscar. I didn't want to do this. <laughs> but, but then he read the script and 10 seconds later, he was like, get me in. Like, I need to do this. Um, how, so being like a lifelong horror fan, what was the experience of like auditioning for this role? And um, how did you come to be cast as Alice for the Dream Master? Ooh, well, that, that does have a story. Actually, um, sorry, I had to do something. So, are you, are you picking up the up like a bottle of scotch? Like, here's the story. I got to pound down. I, I wish I'm pouring some water for my dog. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Oh, it's okay. No worries. Can edit that out. Sorry. Um, so, getting the role of Alice, um, I was just out of college, and I had a, a manager and an agent due to you know theater work I'd done at UCLA and whatnot. And my manager said, oh, I submitted you for Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so great. Well, a month goes by, and he's like, they won't see you. And, and I'm like, well, why? He's like, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> so Annette Benson, the casting director, tells me this story that they literally auditioned over six, 700 actresses for the role wow. of Alice. And they couldn't find her. So they couldn't find their actress. So they went into their... The, the throwaway pile, hi, which I was in, you know. And see, back then, I had uh, virgin platinum blonde hair. I wore the 80s makeup. I mean, I look like a cheerleader. Now, obviously, that is not how you picture Alice, right? So um, anyway, they, I, I was finally allowed the um, opportunity to audition. And I went in with, like, dirty hair. I wore my worst color, which is pale yellow, um, no makeup. And I dug the script. I mean, I just so related to Alice so much. That was me as a, you know, as a daydreamer in grade school and junior high. So, um, yeah, so I auditioned and I had one call back on a Friday. And I read with Tuesday. And, of course, Randy Harlan was in the room, too. Uh, it was a Friday. I was getting married. Uh, 150 people attending the wedding that Sunday. And I was on my honeymoon when I learned that I had gotten the role of Alice. <laughs> so. Uh, I had to end the honeymoon early. We went, came, we uh, had come back to do um, test shoots and, and that's when they said, Hey, we want to change your hair color. Will you dye it? Will you, you know, whatever. And I said, yes, yes, yes. So I have the reddish brown, you know, because Rennie hired three blondes. Okay. Tuesday night who had to be blonde because she's reprising the role of, of Kristen from Nightmare 3. Right. Mm -hmm. and then Brooke Bees bug girl we love to call her um she was <laughs> platinum blonde and here i am a blonde so he's got three blondes and he's blonde <laughs> anyway so, Debbie, so he uh, might have had a little thing going at that point <laughs> he, he might have and he um so so uh, brooke uh, uh got the wig you know and i got the hair rinse every morning before filming <laughs> so <laughs> which actually ended up dying like staining my hair think of throwing red paint on white you know what i mean oh, over boy. and over and over it's totally fine totally worth it so um oh and then here's another thing a lot of people don't know is that um you know it came down between me and another actress and tuesday and you know tuesday was like 
it's Lisa Wilcox. It's Lisa Wilcox. So Tuesday always likes to give credit and say she actually cast me. And that's mm-hmm. totally fine. She can have that. But also, um, Rennie's mother's name is Lisa. So, <laughs> so you had an in. I had an in. You can lean on that. <laughs> every little that bit point. helps. Excellent. Every, every little bit helps. <laughs> You know, during a, a, the recent rewatch that happened with a lot of the cast from the film, uh, it was mentioned that a lot of what you and the cast did was having to come up and maybe develop your characters on the fly and improv and stuff. Was that kind of fun or scary for you as a performer? Oh, super fun. Super, super fun. No, I um, actually um, <clears throat> love writing short stories and I've written some one acts and, and whatnot. So um and directed and of course all that training at ucla theater arts degree you learn everything you know Mm -hmm. so um no it was great fun and improv is just the best it does even if you're not an actor i tell you everyone go take an improv class it will change your life so what specific um sequences were you and your cat and the cast like responsible for coming up with well, you know, the Writers Guild strike was happening, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and we had a full-on script. I mean, we had a script, but uh, we were asked to, we need this scene here. We need, you know, this, that. Um, but I would say mostly we went by the script. We really did. There is one scene, the scene where um, Andres and I, you know, my brother Rick, and I'm watching a video and Kristen's died and I'm just watching a video and he comes in. He's like, what are you doing? la 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 and I tell him about my dream of Freddie and he's like you're not crazy you know anyway Andres and I wrote that scene mm-hmm. I could smell the smoke I could feel the fire <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so you guys would, and how you know one of the things we talked about in our show when we were like analyzing the dream master movie was how close-knit the friend group scene and that seemed to always be a hallmark of the elm street series is that like it was a really tight-knit group of of kids and you rooted you root for them because you believe they were all friends what was it like what did you guys do to bond together as a cast like what made you kind of come together and gave you that feeling of of tight-knitness what an awkward way Um, to put that but sorry (laughs) Well, I, the interesting thing is, I know a lot of the cast, um, they did do things together. Like, I think Toy would, even if she wasn't filming that day, she'd go hang with um, Tuesday on set. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> um, I think they went to movies, maybe did a barbecue. I, oddly enough, I was just married. I just got right. married. <laughs> so I was a married <laughs> woman, you know. So I, I, I didn't get to partake in very much activities with them but on set you know we all worked beautifully together and I and to this day they are my best friends Mm -hmm. they are my best friends and I like to say Annette Benson the casting director she didn't know it but she was casting lifelong friendships you know Mm -hmm. Um, we have great respect for each other we have a great time when we see each other whether it's at a convention or in town or, or whatever you know like Brookby's her son and my son were similar, close in age. We would go bowling together. Toy, who played Sheila, she lived with me. She came back from New York for about, after about 10 years, and she lived with me for over a year. Um, you know, it's that kind of, and then Amanda Wiss and Heather through the conventions, and we're, we're just such good friends. Like, if they needed a kidney, they can have one. Mm-hmm. Your kidney, <laughs> or will you just go randomly find a kidney? <laughs> my kidney. 
Although they may not want it. You know that scotch I was just pouring? (laughs) Right. (laughs) What, um, did it, how much did it help then, like, to, because there is that sense that Alice is just a little bit outside of the group. How much do you think it helped, like, being newly married and, like, not kind of partaking in the shenanigans, we'll say, but then what might go on, like, after hours? How much do you think that might have helped develop the character of Alice? I, I think inevitably in a layer that, um, it worked out the way it should because no, it's very good. And Alice is always kind of outside, but she's this mm-hmm. daydreamer person, you know? Um, so I think it did help. And yet they do embrace the, It's kind of cool. Like these kids seem like, like the Brooke, these characters, she seems like she's the popular chick. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I love how the script reads that in their group, they also embrace, you know, Alice, who's a, maybe a little off, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little odd daydreams you know but she's still embraced you know and i love that representation because you know how brutal high school can be yes oh my gosh i am a counselor for middle schoolers and it's i tell seventh and eighth graders i'm like buckle up these are the worst two years of your life yeah no seriously if if anyone says like hey high school the best years of your life never trust a thing they tell you ever again (laughs) (laughs) right Uh, i would say yeah, grade school was the worst for me, mm-hmm. absolutely, and, and junior high, the worst. And then high school, the beginning was hard because we had just moved from Missouri to California, and, um, you know, I had to readjust. We moved a lot, um, so I was always having to readjust mm-hmm. to a new climate, a new atmosphere, a new school, and all of that, so that's why I tended to just kind of hide in my books and my daydreaming because it was just mm-hmm. safer there. Mm-hmm. Um, no, totally. I, but but I totally yeah, I think, that. yeah, I think all of us can relate to a time during our, <laughs> our formative years where it sucked. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of the many things about the dream master in particular that resonated with me and so many people is that, you know, you see a lot of like slasher films or films within that subgenre where it's mostly about, you know, the antagonists and the kills and stuff. But what's made that film so special is that you've either known or were one of these characters at one point of your life. And I think when it comes to the character of Alice, I mean, over the course of the two films that you played that character, she has such a great arc. I mean, she goes from kind of, you know, a wallflower to this strong character that kind of seizes her own destiny. How did it feel to kind of play that character and see that character grow as much as she did over those films? It is, first of all, an actor's dream to play that kind of role that has a character arc and a believable one, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not like one day she's shy and, oh, all of a sudden she's kicking Freddie's ass. No, yeah. it, it's, it's subtle. It's gradual, you know? So, so that's a, a dream for us. And then in the five, you know, she, you know, Alice really comes into her own. She, you're not taking my baby, get out of my house. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, the script was just remarkable and it is what helped, you know, it's always the script that is the body, the spine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's up to me to portray it in a believable way. So what I had to do actually, because, you know, you film scenes out of order, right? You might be filming mm-hmm. scene three and then you're going to be doing scene 49 after lunch, you know? So I wrote in my script every, in ev- for every scene who had died by then, okay? Because then I know what 
kind of level of development Alice is at, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was very important to me to make it believable, this transition, these transitions, you know, that she goes through. So anyway, yeah, I mean, such a great script. What was different moving from Dream Master, where, you know, it's your first role in the franchise to Dream Child and like going from working with Rennie Harlan to Stephen Hopkins, like, was there a comfort level because you had already kind of inhibited, you know, inhibited this character or was there any sort of pressure knowing that like you were now like the definitive lead aside from obviously Robert is Freddie? Well, I, I certainly felt more confidence as an actor because I had done a full length feature film that mm -hmm. and we filmed for we we always debate one day we'll figure out but I it was eight to ten weeks you know doing that so I felt you know um secure you know on my feet being on set and how it all really works you know mm -hmm. that was my um yeah so and then of course five you know is such a different tone than four um I would say Rennie was he was very calm on set he was very um, he was like an actor's director, I would call. And mm -hmm. Steve Hopkins, also a wonderful director as well. Uh, but he was much more visual and he's an incredibly talented artist. I mean, he wrote all, he drew all of the storyboards. He was very involved with the production, the set and how it was going to look, you know? So, um, so both in their own right, they're, they're, you know, great directors and would love to work with them again, but it's different. And Steven too, I think he had more pressure on him. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was budget and, and time and, and all of that. And, you know, we could sense that on set, you know, sometimes we'd be like, you know, he's talking with the producer or whatever, and we're the actors and we're like, oh no, mom and dad are fighting. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> you know? So at times it could be a little bit more stressful, I guess, but I don't know behind the scenes what was happening, you know, and I'm, mm -hmm. you know, we all react differently to, What's on her shoulders? Was there ever like a sort of feeling that like the set pieces were taking precedent over like the performances? Like it was more about getting the special effects right versus nailing a performance. Did it ever feel like that on the dream child or did you just not, did, was it just more pressure to just get it done uh, and get it done in, in, on time? Um, I, I would say the, the effects were probably took a little bit more precedence. Um, you know, I mean, Danny and the motorcycle scenes, all of that. Oh, my gosh. That was incredibly elaborate. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, they got uh, they had to cut parts out because it was going to get an X rating, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and uh, things in the warehouse and, and the comic book stuff and um, yeah, perhaps there was a little more emphasis on um, the set, and yeah, I, I would say so. Mm -hmm. And also, I oh, okay. also, what I always like to say about Nightmare Five is I feel like it was a film way, way ahead of its time because mm -hmm. of the subject matters. I mean, we're not only dealing with teen pregnancy, abortion, adoption parents getting involved we're dealing with a recovered alcoholic we're dealing with bulimia okay and anorexia i mean mm -hmm. we're dealing with like all these things in 1989 okay mm -hmm. okay these are not things you 
talked about over dinner, <laughs> you know? Um, so the movie was quite brave, I feel, in hitting up on so many of these different teenage themes that were prominent and happening, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So anyway, I find today, and I would say in the past couple of years, that Nightmare 5 has, is getting a lot more appreciation mm -hmm. than it got in the 89 or the past few decades, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and also it shows too in the box office numbers. I mean, it was a heavy film. Yeah. You know, Nightmare 4 made like 50 million and I think 5 made like 16 million or something. Yeah. So anyway. Now, did, did I read correctly that you had an idea to bring Alice back in a new film? Uh, <laughs> well, of course, I always have the idea. Have I put pen to paper? No. Mm -hmm. But, but um, there have been um, scripts floating around. Um, but there's a, one that came up this year. And this group has talked to Robert and they've presented this concept and I'm definitely on board. And of course this happened, I think in February of this year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, everything's kind of on hold. Um, but it's a, it's a, I can't talk about it, but mm -hmm. it's, the, oh, no one most will hear clever. This. Okay. No one will hear. No, this. no. It is the most <laughs> right. clever way of bringing back Alice, Jacob and mm -hmm the man so um yeah very excited about it and i think you know 2021 we you know we can't live like this forever we <laughs> you know i think 2021 is going to have a lot of prom promising things hopefully yeah. yeah what were your favorite sequences to shoot in these movies like what visual like um a lot of us love the theater scene. And I know Robert England has said the time loop with uh, Alice and Dan is his favorite thing in the series. Was there anything in particular that you loved to film? Well, visually the theater scene, that is just amazing and flying into the screen and then it's black and white. And to do that scene, we filmed physically in, uh, at a theater, uh, the Rialto in Pasadena and several famous films have La La Land, in fact, filmed at the Rialto. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not the whole thing, but you know what I mean. It was a location that was utilized. And and then the Crave Inn is actually located in Culver City. So we shot in Culver City for the exterior of the Crave Inn and recreated that whole thing with the leaves and the blower. I mean, it was a, a fan the size of a helicopter. I am not kidding <laughs> to how that happened. Um, and then there was on set where they built the theater set because remember when the popcorn and the soda is flying yeah. out, that was built on a platform that could move vertically, right? So that, that happened via gravitational pull. So I mean, oh my gosh, how clever and elaborate and, you know, CGI is not around back then, you know? Right. So it's pretty remarkable. But personally, my favorite scenes to film were the ones with the girls, like in the Craven, and we're just bantering, and oh, Dan is so cute, and <laughs> I just, I just adore those scenes because again, it's about the friendship and the relationship that we have and our bonding, which then everyone watching the film was like, wow, yeah, they're really friends, you know. Yep. So those are my favorite scenes. You've um. 
you've mentioned the friendship that has kind of lasted from making these movies a couple times. And there recently was the Elm Street 4 reunion panel, like where you did like a, a group watch and then they did a Q&A. Um, how was that to do? And like, how did that, was it for any particular charity or was it just something because we, you know, obviously this 2020 is a garbage year and we need any sort of light that we can to have some fun. How did it come together? <laughs> well, um, it, it really was like, it was like, okay, so we can't do conventions, but there has to be a way we can still at least communicate and share something, popcorn night, something, you know? And so, and Mark Patton, he did a nightmare too, uh, kind of thing. And, you know, we're friends and stuff. And I'm like, gee, you know, maybe I'll try and do a nightmare four. And so uh, everyone was on board for sure. Um, we, we asked for donations, almost like a convention, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, um, but we did, you know, we were sending raffle posters that's going to be signed by the entire cast. Now, mind you, that is not easy to do because the poster is going to go from household to household to household to household. Wow. <laughs> the shipping so, um, alone must be insane. Well, if you do USPS, it's like ten bucks. Mm -hmm. so, so that, but so the donation went towards one the Zoom platform because we didn't know how many people were going to attend. A thousand, fifty, we didn't know. So we made sure we could, could accommodate at least a thousand, and then uh, the shipping, the posters, the printing, the time, the communication, and all of that. So mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, it was uh, it was uh, quite a bit to chew. A lot for me to produce, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Peter Valdemara, who was great. He's the one who commentated and whatnot. And but we had a great time. We we did. We had we had a great time. I'm planning to do probably another Nightmare Four again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's also about realizing, reaching, it, getting people to hear about it. You know, because yeah. after it happened, people were like, well, "I didn't hear about it. I wanted to attend. I wanted it to attend." So it's me learning how to what groups to reach out to and follow and have them follow me and work together and let us all have this fun experience, you know, and nightmare five, I'm definitely going to do either this month or early October. Excellent. Well, I, I should let you know, like we early in the pandemic, we got a bunch of us together and did a, a script reading of nightmare five. Oh, um, you did. Yes, yeah, one many... of those earlier drafts with the with the rap song in it. I don't think, yeah, with the. Do you want to do the rap? Can we do the rap together? Can we do that? <laughs> oh my god, that was bad. Um, send me the lyrics. I don't know. Send me. Um, but Nightmare Five is just because I with five. I've really only kept in touch with Kelly Jo Minter, Yvonne, mm -hmm. who survives. Mm -hmm. uh, Danny, of course. Um, but the other cast members, I have not kept in in touch with. Okay. Um, so uh, due to location, I think more than anything, mm -hmm. um, I think Eric is in Canada, but also it was so many moving parts with 10 of us for Nightmare mm -hmm. 4. I'm like, I don't think I can do this again. I yeah. think I'll just keep it down to a simple three of us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Go. Awesome. So. Excellent. Well, um, I guess the, the, Jerry, what else did you have, my friends? I see I'm going no, through the notes I, I, here. No, I, I, I'm good. I've, I've asked everything that I was curious yeah. about. I so definitely I, appreciate it. I know that um, you just appeared in The Quiet Room, which is on Shudder, Sam Weinman's 
short film and it looks like there's a number of projects that are in the work. So, you know, obviously the obvious answer, it's been terrible, but, you know, I'm just curious as to how COVID has affected you and what sort of things we have lined up for, you know, once we can get back to like filming and writing and putting some art together, like what's lined up? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'll tell you, it, uh, <laughs> production is definitely gearing up. In fact, in the past, like, three days, seriously, um, a film that I'm going to do in Galway was supposed to happen this June, July, you know. Anyway, they're, like, looking at February, March next year. Um, I did a Lifetime movie with uh, Michael Madsen, Ooh. uh he's been in like every quentin tarantino movie yeah, yeah. most 200 movies so what a cool thing to work with him uh, but we filmed it in uh december january and um they called me 10 days ago and said we're doing reshoots and adding scenes can you get to la because during just before covid i moved to nevada mm-hmm. <laughs> i moved to las vegas which is only you know four hours from la but anyway so, yeah, so we, you know, when everything was cool, masks on, social distancing, you know, of course, as an actor, yeah, you're sitting next to each other, but they got the thermometer thing, you know, and all of that. And it went very smoothly. And I felt completely comfortable because I've been extremely safe and have quarantined and, you know, Definitely. so and then another project um, that was supposed to happen this year is scheduled for November in North Carolina. And so that's supposed to be happening now. So, you know, production is happening. I even did a commercial here in Las Vegas, you know? So it's it's happening, you know? But during the COVID processes, the PSA is what came out of me, um, Mm -hmm. doing these Zoom, watch the movie together kind of thing. You know, I'm just trying to hang in there. What's also really working nicely are just smaller venues, not big conventions mm-hmm. um like there's this really fun museum in boulder city nevada uh very close to where i live um called tom devlin's monster museum mm-hmm. so it was me nick nick benson who's an amazing special effects artist who did the puppetry in nightmare four and he's done tons of other things too and then um <clears throat> oh ch graham the, the, from yeah Hollywood. yeah mm-hmm. so <clears throat> and they had it perfect it was like instead of one table it was two tables in front of us and then selfies were done with the um the guests standing in front of the table and then mm-hmm. we're behind the table so we're in the picture but in the background but it's still you know great um you know with what's not happening is the hugging and handshaking and the arm around the shoulder thing mm-hmm. right but we're still getting to talk see each other have a good time um i'm gonna do a signing and um uh, <clears throat> Nightmare Toys in Las Vegas. It's a store that just had a grand opening about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Kane Hodder, Daniel Harris, Tamara Glenn were there. Oh, wow. uh, again, double tables. Everyone's wearing masks. And they have a big store with high, high ceilings, you know. So, And they monitored how many people were allowed in the building. In fact, they had a tent outside and a food truck, water, everything. So people waiting to come inside were comfortable, you know. So we're just all, we're figuring it out. But, you know, the fat lady hasn't sung yet. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> we're we're going to make it happen. <laughs> it feels like, I mean, that's such a, a good thing to hear because obviously there are stories of people that are, I mean, I think we're all fed up with this. Um, I know the school I work at, like we're going to be, 
remote through Thanksgiving at least. And it's frustrating, but it's good to hear that like, as frustrating as it is, people are like, rather than getting angry, they're being accommodating and finding out ways to make this actually work. And I think that's really important. And I think like now more than ever, like someone getting to go and talk to someone in a movie that it's meant so much to them and take a picture with them, even from a table away, um, it can brighten someone's day in a way that we really need right now. Well, it's, it's a psychological fact as human mm. beings. We need things to look forward to. Yes. We need to know, uh, you know, next, mm -hmm. you know, in two months, I'm getting my vacation. I'm going to the mountains. I'm going skiing. I'm going to the beach. I'm go you know what I mean? We need things or even something as simple as I'm going to have, you know, lunch with my, my buddies on Thursday, mm -hmm. you know? Mentally, we need things to look forward to. I do that all the time with clients, like especially kids when they're having a bad day. I'm like, write something down you're looking forward to later today. Oh and my when, gosh. And whenever you're having like a bad moment in class, pull it out and look at it. And it like works. It really, really works. I love that. It, yeah. I'm so glad that that is that you as a, in the educational system mm -hmm. are utilizing that. Um, because, and as adults, and I don't care how old you are, you can be 80 years old. You, mm -hmm. We need that. We Absolutely. need that to, to, to survive, to live, you know? So. Oh, Lisa Wilcox, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, we really looked forward to this interview. Like we were both really excited to do it. I am currently watching all the Elm streets with my daughter. Um, she really loved Dream Master, so we have Dream Child next to get through. She calls Freddy in this one Vacation Freddy because he's like all jokey and having fun, and she absolutely adores adores <laughs> these movies. Um, so we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, I had a great time, and thank you for um, sharing uh, with your little one. And you know, what I love too is that each film in the Nightmare on Street, they're each so different. They each have like their own tone. It's just so fun, so fascinating to me still. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. Thank you. Right. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lisa Wilcox. We have more guests that we're looking to line up. Um, for our patrons, you're enjoying this interview first, and then we're going to combine everything into one massive super bonus episode so Mike and Jerry can have a week off once the series is complete. Thanks very much. Lisa Wilcox, also known as Alice Johnson from A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 5, and you are listening to Pod and the Pendulum. Thank you so much. I just talked over it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>